You're here with a mission, sir? I am. Trying to get me back in the world? Trying to save it. You think you're the only superhero in the world? You've become part of a bigger universe. You just don't know it yet. I'm here to talk to you about the Avenger Initiative. This is now playing's Avengers Retrospective Series. The Avengers. That's what we call ourselves. Earth's Mightiest Heroes type thing. Part of the now playing Marvel comic movie series. Well, I guess that's worth a look. Hosted by Arnie. Don't do anything I wouldn't do. And definitely don't do anything I wouldn't do. Jacob. A little more mentoring. Could be a real asset to the team. And Stuart. What's up, guys? Wait a minute. You guys aren't the real Avengers. What are you prepared to do? At NowPlayingPodcast.com, we will be reviewing all the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies featuring the superheroes Iron Man. I'm just not the, the hero type, clearly. The Incredible Hulk. He was a freak accident. The goal is to do it better. Thor. You're big. Fought bigger. Captain America. How many of you are ready to help me sock old Adolf on the job? Ant-Man. The ultimate secret weapon. Guardians of the Galaxy. What a bunch of a-holes. Doctor Strange. Heroes like the Avengers protect the world from physical dangers. We sorcerers safeguard it against more mystical threats. Spider-Man. Are you an Avenger? Yeah, basically. And the Avengers. I have an army. We have a Hulk. Let me emphasize that what I'm about to share with you is tremendously sensitive both to me personally and the army. This podcast will contain detailed plot spoilers and mild language. I'm glad you asked that because I wanted to take this time to explain my evil plan. Listener discretion is advised. I've always been more curious than cautious. So, are we going to do this? Gentlemen, you're up. Showtime, a-holes! Today we're discussing Spider-Man Homecoming. Starring Tom Holland, Michael Keaton, John Favreau, Zendaya, Donald Glover, Tyne Daly, with Marissa Tomei, and Robert Downey Jr. This is the now playing co-host who knows how it's hard to fit in with all those changes your body is going through, Arnie. And I'm your man in the chair, Stuart. This is Jacob, and I'm not a girl. I'm a boy. I, I'm a podcaster. It's the 21st century, Jacob. You can be both at once. <laughs> but can I be a Spider-Man? The spider died. Ned wants to be a Spider-Man. He wants to sign up for that bite. But can Tom Holland be a Spider-Man? It is the third incarnation of Spider-Man in a very short amount of time. He's up there with the Hulk now. No, Hulk only had two. No, Ang Lee and then Norton and now uh, Ruffalo. But that's not a reboot. That was a recast. Three versions, though. General Ross showed up in Civil War. Incredible Hulk is in continuity. I keep hearing rumors Abomination might show up, maybe in Avengers 3. There's 64 damn characters in Avengers 3. Wow. But it is a very fast turnaround. I mean, I've been talking on a lot of shows, now playing, this is our 10th year. We passed that in May. But what I didn't really pay as much attention to was that means Spider-Man 3 was 10 years ago this past May. It's 10 years and two months old. <laughs> the very first movie I ever reviewed. Yeah, I still remember getting that phone call from you. 
The stress. I was like, what's wrong? Did someone die? Well, sort of. <laughs> yeah, it's fandom for Spider-Man. At least it'll be McGuire Spider-Man. But Sony hasn't even given up. I don't know if either of you got a chance to rewatch Spider-Man 3 for this podcast. <laughs> Why? <laughs> Why would I watch it for this podcast or anything else? Yeah. No, I walked into the theater and saw this movie. I haven't thought about Spider-Man since the Amazing <laughs> Spider-Man 2. They released a 10th anniversary new cut of Spider-Man 3. Do they cut a lot of things out of it? I see that's the only way to improve it. It's two minutes shorter. Oh, okay. <laughs> does it still have the dancing? It does still have the dancing, unfortunately. They probably should have cut that all entirely. They rearranged it, so after he blows up Harry's face, he then goes out and dances immediately. Like, he's <laughs> cheering the fact that he killed Harry. It is strange. It is called the editor's cut. It is apparently supervised by Sam Raimi. I thought every film was the editor's cut. <laughs> Well, you got the director's cut, and honestly, you have the studio's cut more often than not, I think. But I did, for this review, watch the editor's cut because we've had a lot of people wondering, does it change our review of Spider-Man 3? No, it doesn't change the movie. It has two improvements. The first improvement, we do see Sandman's daughter again. If you remember that movie, I bitched. Sandman had a daughter for one scene. The rest of the movie, he was stealing money for this daughter we never saw again. There is one other scene, I guess, was filmed of that little girl on the beach and Sandman forms a sand castle for her. That's an improvement. Okay. <laughs> it's an improvement to continue his motivation and it explains why he gets pissed off at Spider-Man because after she leaves, he like says Spider-Man can't stop him again because he needs to help his sick daughter. The second improvement, there's no butler coming out. Harry, I think I'll tell you at this important moment, your father killed himself. It isn't Spider-Man who killed him. Remember the Deus Ex butler that happened there? That was cut out. There's mostly a rearranging of scenes, trimming of scenes. Is it better? Slightly. It's also worse in a couple of ways, and in the end, you just can't fix that movie. I mean, it's got Topher Grace. They don't cut him out. Yeah, you just can't fix what Spider-Man 3 did wrong. So I came into this new Spider-Man very anxious for what I hope to be the best Spider-Man movie ever. I mean, there's nothing better than revisiting Spider-Man 3 to make you excited for a reboot. <laughs> well, it always seems to come back. And my curiosity is, all right, he's coming home. He is Marvel's most popular character, I think, by far. But what can they do with him that hasn't already been done? It's one thing to say we own him. It's another thing to say we can do him better than others. Yeah, Arnie, you, you say this is the third reboot. It's weird because it doesn't feel that way. It feels like I've missed the first film for Tom Holland. I guess I saw that Civil War, but I missed that first Tom Holland Spider-Man film. It, we're never going to get an origin for this one, I guess, unless it's in flashback at some point. What's really funny is if you go back to... Our old Spider-Man reviews, when we did the Spider-Man retrospective series, it was leading up to that first Amazing Spider-Man in 2012. And I said it then. I said, they're not going to show the bite. They're not going to do that. They're going to do it in <laughs> montage like they did Incredible Hulk. We saw the origin story recently enough. They could just jump right into him being the Spider-Man. And I was dead wrong. And here... I think they listened to now playing and went, you know, that Arnie guy had a good idea. Let's not show the third death of Uncle Ben in as many series. Everybody knows that Spider-Man got bit by some radioactive or genetically changed spider, got the powers, his uncle died, he lives with his aunt. Let's just jump into him being Spider-Man. I think that's the greatest thing to do. And he was a highlight of Civil War, but... 
I want to kind of talk about how this came to be. Because remember, this year, 2017, we were supposed to have Amazing Spider-Man 3 last June. Sinister 6 last November. That was never coming out. Yeah, I think it was pretty obvious after that second Amazing Spider-Man, which I thought was an uptick from the first one. Yeah. People were growing less and less interested in the franchise. I think Sony was right to seek help from original sources. Well, this is... I hate to say thank you to the hackers who did Sony, but this is all out in public emails what happened. They were doing it. You say that was never going to happen? Flashback. The year is 2014. Amazing Spider-Man 2 just came out. It made a ton of money internationally. And Kaz Karari? Know that name? Nope. You must not be a Sony stockholder. He's the one in charge of all of Sony. He was down doing a presentation at the World Cup Finals and had this major speech pre-written. It was going to be him and Andrew Garfield there giving the release date of Amazing Spider-Man 3 and all these follow-up films. World Cup, you say. They had already given up on America then. Yeah, yeah. obviously an international <laughs> hit then. Yeah, it was down in Brazil. Yeah, it's, that's where they wanted it. But one hour before the event, Andrew Garfield doesn't show up. He said he felt sick. The Sony hack emails have things like, quote, he has a rather scruffy beard and just wants to be left alone. Well, Karari took that as a personal insult and said, that Garfield is out. All these films we were about to announce with him at the World Cup, out. We had to rewrite the speech. We had to rearrange seating at our dinner, damn it. And so Garfield was fired by a butthurt Sony chief. That, not the box office, not the critics, not showing up at the World Cup Finals lost Andrew Garfield his big gig. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. Hollywood can be pretty petty, and yeah, people hold grudges. And like you say, though, I imagine if the second movie had been huge, beloved, Kiari would have been like, all right, we'll get over it. Yeah, he, he was scapegoating on Garfield here. Though, I do feel after watching this, maybe they really do want to do a Sinister Six movie. It feels like they're setting one up here. The funny thing is, though, these are the Sony hack emails. There's no PR involved here. I got to read all of the personal emails that these people never wanted to go public, and petty is certainly the word for it. And they didn't know what to do next. They just knew they wanted to have a Spider-Man film out in 2016. They didn't, but they wanted to. They went back to Sam Raimi. They were like, let's do a new trilogy. Nobody knows for sure if it would have been with Tobey Maguire or a reboot with Raimi coming back to tell new Spider-Man stories or what the hell would have happened. But they engaged Raimi in talks about doing three more films. And yeah, Sony Pictures head Amy Pascal was in talks with Marvel, but Marvel didn't like their terms. And by the time that Sony got hacked in December 2014, the deal was off the table. It was like, absolutely not. We're not agreeing to Sony's terms on this, so we just won't go with Spider-Man. But because of the hacks, Kevin Feige reached back out to Amy Pascal and said, oh, I saw all your private emails. You really do want to work with us. Let's talk again. And within two months, a deal was made. That deal is for six movies, three in the Marvel Universe and three Spider-Man films. Each of the Spider-Man films will get a major involvement from a Marvel character, in this case Iron Man, but each of the future movies can also have one big player. So you mean by three in the Marvel Universe, that's the, on the Disney side, because this one feels like it's in that Marvel Cinematic Universe. Right, I'm saying three Avengers films. 
Okay. Basically, although I think the first of those was Civil War. And then three solo Spider-Man films. So, the way it is, in case you're wondering who made what... Sony has full creative control. Sony does the distribution. Sony does the marketing. Sony gets final cut and approves decisions. But Marvel Studio produces Kevin Feige and Amy Pascal co-produce the films. And Amy, because of the Sony hack, did get demoted. She is no longer head of Columbia Pictures. And so the big question is, the new studio heads, once this six movies happens... Will they continue the deal? Or are they going to go off on their own? I guess to be continued in 2030, whenever they get around to all those. Oh, 2021. All right. Because we'll talk about that at the end of the show, what's coming up for Spidey. It's going to be fast, but it's quite a change from what we did have when Sony was creating their own Spider-Verse. You know, I went into this one, yeah, that first... Tobey Maguire, Sam Raimi, Spider-Man was a surprise to me. I ended up liking it a lot more than I thought I would. But both the previous Spider-Man franchises I've been pretty cool on overall. And I went into this one very hopeful. I really like Tom Holland's take on Spider-Man in Civil War. I thought he was good. It had that Spider-Man feel with all the quips. And they're going young. They're going back to high school. I think that's when Spider-Man works best. So I was looking forward to this one. I thought this one would easily be the best going in. Okay, thanks, Joe Quesada. I think Spider-Man works well as a 20-something, but that's what I grew up reading in the newspaper strips and the comic books. I mean, he was only in high school for something like 10 or 15 issues. Hey, I love the series Mary Jane Loves Spider-Man. That's a good high school drama Spider-Man comic. I I love it. I'm not ashamed to say that. No, I like that too. I also like Ultimate Spider-Man where he did never leave high school, but... Well, you'll get an Ultimate Spider-Man kind of in this one. Eh, we'll talk about it, but yeah, I think he works fine as an adult. I liked what Raimi did, but yes, for some reason, even though he's not really been depicted a high school student for most of his life, Marvel and you like him as a kid. So they got a 21-year-old to play him. Yeah, Tom Holland. Hey, he, he plays a good 15-year-old. I I feel bad for Tom Holland because, yeah, I looked that up. He is 21, but I swear he's 15. He was 19 and 20 when this was being filmed. But, yeah, as compared to Andrew Garfield, who was almost 30 years old playing a high school student. Yeah, that's what I feel like Marvel is banking on. They're like, this is the way that we can make this fresh again by going millennial and making the character relatable to kids that don't know not. 9-11. We'll get rid of all that pathos, we'll get rid of all of that angst, and we'll just make it fun and peppy and very youthful. Yeah, they must be banking on people not knowing 9-11, because when a plane's crashing towards New York City, that's all I can think about. But, you know, I took my two girls, 10 and 6 years old. They were both looking forward to it, I think, because it did feel younger, and because it had Zendaya, some, I guess, Disney star they know. Zendaya. Oh, sorry. See, I don't know who this is. They were super excited. Like, they turned to me. Zendaya. That's Zendaya. Rewatch her on Disney Channel. Okay. I was convinced half of these people were YouTube stars. I'm like, I don't know (laughs) nobody in this high school. I did know one of the actresses. I did look up Zendaya because I didn't know her, and she was really heavily promoting this film. They did like a 30-minute Disney Channel behind-the-scenes thing with Zendaya and Tom Holland. I'm like, all right, who is Zendaya? And I looked her up, and it's I found this article that's like, it's now time to teach your dad how to pronounce Zendaya. <laughs> it's explained it. <laughs> Obviously. no one, I did not read that article. So I did look her up. I got excited because I... 
saw that she was a musician who did the song Replay. Turns out it's not the song I like. It's some terrible R&B ballad. I gotta figure, yeah, if she's a Disney musician, it's not stuff I'm gonna like. Look, she did a remake of Scott Baio Zapped. (laughs) Again, a Disney version. I'm guessing there's no locker room scene with the girl's clothes flying off. But no, I didn't know the majority of the kids in this high school. I know there was a lot of online controversy isn't there always online controversy i got thinking about it did either of the last two spider-man universes jamie fox excluded have any people of color in it at all yeah no that's something i really noticed with this one you know it's set in new york it feels like that yeah it's a very diverse movie yeah and they changed flash thompson he's now played by guatemalan actor tony rivalori yeah him i actually knew it's the star of grand budapest hotel Okay, that's where he was from. He looked familiar. He got death threats because Flash should be white, and they got Zendaya here, and we're going to be talking about how much she is or isn't MJ, Mary Jane from the comics. And they talked about even making Spider-Man African-American. There is the comic Ultimate Spider-Man, where a half-African-American, half-Latino boy became Spider-Man. Yeah, I know there was a big push for Donald Glover to be Spider-Man, and he does show up in here, and there's a big Spider-Man connection with his character in this film. We'll talk about it. Yep. So definitely they changed quite a bit of stuff while also having a lot of comic book references. Yeah, those people just need to take a trip to New York. Yeah. I mean, I noticed when you got Orthodox Jews, I'm like, yes, this feels like New York. I got friends who live in New York when they send pictures of their kids at school. It's very diverse like this. Yeah. You can't walk down the street and not see 30, 40 cultures represented. Yes. So you went with your kids. I went opening night, Thursday night to our local IMAX Again, just opened recently. The most full I've ever seen it. It was probably, what would you say, Stuart? You were with me, 90% full? Yeah, and they did not adjust the air condition to accommodate that. It was sweltering in there. Oh, See, I was wondering, I'm like, is this theater full because it's Spider-Man or because it's 107 today and people just want to get out of the heat? My parents went to the film. They didn't go see Spider-Man, but they went to the movies because they're like, we just got to get out of this heat. Yeah, I'd do Captain Underpants just to get out of that. (laughs) They also screwed up our projection. We were seeing IMAX 3D. We're watching it, and at one moment, the film literally just stops, and I'm thinking, this is a bold artistic choice. It was right after the montage, he was swinging, and it's when he skids into the roof because his web's too long, and the film just freezes. I'm like, well, this is an odd kind of choice, and then the guy comes in and says, sorry, folks, we forgot to turn on your 3D. We have to (laughs) rewind and fast forward the film. We had 10 minutes of them trying to get the film back where it was and in 3D. Strange thing is I don't think anyone was complaining. I was like, oh, yeah, it isn't in 3D. I'm so used to bad, you know, once it got going, yeah, I mean, this is 3D. I I don't know if it's worth the extra ticket price, but if you enjoy seeing the third dimension in depth, uh, yeah, once they turned it on, it was there. I liked one scene a lot in 3D, and that was when he's on top of the Washington Monument and they're trying to sell us Fear of Heights. That really made me feel high up. The rest of it, it's a post-conversion job, and it feels like it. Having just come out of Transformers, which was shot with IMAX 3D cameras, I was let down. This isn't IMAX formatted ever, and the 3D is pretty paltry. I did go back the next day. I decided to go to a 4 p.m. showing because I looked. We have reserved seating. The 7 p.m. showing was almost completely full. I would have had to have a crappy seat. So I went to the 4 p.m. showing, and 
It also ended up being almost pretty full. I guess a lot of people just don't order tickets in advance. It was as full as the night before. The air conditioner was working better. And I saw it 2D because I didn't feel like the 3D was necessary. So I've seen it IMAX 3D for 80% of it. IMAX 2D (laughs) for the whole thing. Clearly, though, the busiest film I've seen in theaters this year. Yeah, I definitely feel like there's a lot of anticipation. A lot of people want to see if this works. Arnie, I know you're the Spider-Man fan. That means you get to do the plot. Let's get into Homecoming and see if it was a fun party. It's been two months since Spider-Man's coming out party during the Avengers Civil War. In this time, the man under the suit, Peter Parker, played by Tom Holland, has been shirking his school responsibilities and just waiting for his next big mission. Tony Stark played for the eighth time by Robert Downey Jr., has said Peter's contact was Tony's friend Happy Hogan, again played by Jon Favreau. But Hogan is none too happy about being saddled with his 15-year-old and pretty much ignores the kid. Peter learns his powers going on patrols, wearing the high-tech suit Tony gave him, and accidentally reveals his identity to his best friend Ned, played by Jacob Batalon. But Peter has to keep it a secret from his Aunt May, played by Marissa Tomei, who Peter lives with. And at school, even though Peter's only a sophomore, he crushes on senior smart girl Liz, played by Laura Harrier. But Liz is crushing on Spider-Man, a fact Ned encourages Peter to exploit. But during a patrol, Spider-Man discovers some thieves robbing an ATM with high-tech weaponry. And one night while at Liz's party, Peter sees a blue explosion in the distance. He ditches the party to investigate and find some high-tech arms dealers. He tries to apprehend them, but is handily beaten by a masked man in a winged suit. That man is Adrian Toomes, played by Batman's Michael Keaton. Birdman playing a Birdman. Batman playing a Birdman. I mean, Birdman was already pretty meta because he was Batman, and now, yeah, it just keeps going. Well, Toomes had been a construction worker hired to clean up the destruction after the Tartari attack on New York. But when the government Department of Damage Control takes over that job, Toombs and his crew decide to keep some of their found Chitauri items and become small-time high-tech weapons dealers. They've continued this for years, with Toombs using the flight suit to steal bits and pieces from the DODC ever since. When Iron Man seems unconcerned about these arms dealers, Spider-Man takes it on himself to capture them. He follows them first to Maryland, where he's beaten again by Toombs, and then to a deal on the Staten Island Ferry. There, Spider-Man, along with the FBI, try to stop Toombs, but one of the laser guns misfires, literally cutting the boat in half. Spider-Man fails to stop the destruction, but Iron Man shows up, saving the boat. And Stark chastises Spider-Man for putting people's lives in danger, and Tony repos the suit he gave Peter. Chagrined, Peter goes back to normal school life, giving up on being Spider-Man. He even gets the courage to ask Liz to the homecoming dance, which she accepts. But when he goes to pick Liz up for the party, the door is opened by her father, Adrian Toomes. Peter recognizes the arms dealer immediately, and it doesn't take Toomes too long to realize his daughter's date is the man who's been screwing with his business. He threatens Peter's life to leave him alone. But that spurs Peter back into action. Ditching Liz at the dance, Peter dons his old homemade suit and goes to stop Vulture, who is doing his biggest heist yet trying to steal items from an Avengers plane carrying stuff from Stark Tower to their new upstate base. Spider-Man gives chase and the two fight on the hull of an in-flight aircraft. Their battle damages the engines and the plane crashes down in Coney Island. There, Toombs is ready to leave Peter and to steal a couple crates, but one of them explodes. Peter saves Toombs from the fire, leaving him webbed up for the authorities. And his heroism gets Tony Stark to reconsider Peter's role as a hero and is ready to make him a full Avenger. 
but Peter decides he'd rather stay small time and keep going to high school, even though Liz won't be there as she and her mother are moving to Oregon now that her dad is arrested. And Tony does give Peter his old suit back, but he's discovered putting it on by his Aunt May. His secret identity is out, and credits roll. Has it really been that long since Avengers? I was surprised that they're setting that in the distant past. Eight years ago. Well, yeah, that it was long enough for the main characters of this movie to be children doing crayon sketches. Oh, it goes even further. Kevin Feige has confirmed. Remember Iron Man 2? I'm going to bring up some minutia here. There's a scene where a little kid, six or seven years old, stands in front of one of the hammer drones wearing an Iron Man mask and holds up his repulsor glove like these little Hasbro toys are going to save him. And then Iron Man does zap him from behind and the kid's like, wow, I did that. They have confirmed that six-year-old is Peter Parker. It's only an Easter egg if you can figure out it's Peter Parker without someone telling you years later, 10 years later or whatever. But I was wondering, eight years later, after the Battle of New York, Avengers came out in 2012. So that this is 2020 is a little bit strange. I did quite a bit of online research about Avengers timelines. And here's what it comes down to. It's screwed up. It's really screwed up because initially they did a lot of retconning, if you remember. They eventually said Iron Man was in 2010, even though it came out in 2008. Iron Man 2, Hulk, and Thor all took place the same week in 2011. But (laughs) Avengers was certainly in 2012. Well, why would this be 2020? The thing that is being assumed is they're retconning the timeline and they're making everything retroactive from 2020 because they're planning this new Spider-Man trilogy to be like Harry Potter. The next Spider-Man movie that comes out is going to be his junior year of high school and then the third movie is going to be his senior year of high school. So by making this 2020, that means the third year has to take place in 2022 and that third Spider-Man movie is going to come out in 2021 or 2022. So they're being proactive to get their date straight so that it all fits. I don't know that the average ticket goer is sitting there with calendars and consulting the sun to being like, wait, this wouldn't have happened yet. <laughs> I mean, the point is they're addressing a new generation. If that Battle of Chachari was some kind of stand-in for 9-11, then this is that generation that was too small to have really processed it and is now coming into adulthood. Yeah, my girls had seen Avengers. I don't know how well they remember it. So, yeah, the fact that they're going to catch you all up here and, hey, there's this big war. And I like the fact that they bring in some deep cuts from Marvel-like damage control to clean this stuff up. I like seeing this aftermath. It was fun to hear the little snippets on, like, the Daredevil Netflix show about the incident and, and just how this had affected New York. Yeah, damage control, I found this to be funny. They were going to have their own television show. On ABC. Yeah, I heard about that at one point. It was going to be a sitcom. Now, that didn't work out so well for Powerless, the DC sitcom that NBC aired, but they actually were dropping references to damage control in certain episodes of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. because they thought they were having a spinoff that did not get picked up to series. But here we have damage control headed by... Anne-Marie Hogue, who is a comic book character I'd never heard of, but apparently she runs damage control in the Marvel comic universe, and I'm guessing we'll see her again? Why else would you hire Tyne Daly? 
Cagney and Lacey. <laughs> I don't know why you would hire her at all, but I agree. I feel like probably every character we see is potentially a spinoff from somewhere else. But, you know, Marvel is one thing I'm always going to give them credit for. They're really good at capturing the time and the moment. And here in this scene, seeing a bunch of government hoo-hahs in suits telling construction workers they're not needed anymore and it's their fault that they got in debt and bought all this equipment, they're really just capturing, right, the divided America, that red state, blue state clash that's going on. And I think that, you know, it really humanizes Michael Keaton's character. He becomes a very relatable villain and I'll go ahead and say it, maybe Marvel's best villain. I don't think that's hard to say because they don't usually try to humanize or give their villain's character. So yeah, the fact that, you know, he's going to give a speech at the end to Spider-Man, even though he seems to be living as a one percenter by the end of this film, but I get his conflict. I don't know that I agree with the best villain. The plot actually is one they've already done. When you bought the Avengers Blu-ray, there was one of those one-shots, item 47. It's one of the first we never talked about because we only did the one-shots when we were doing the original movies on video, but it was kind of a pilot or test story for Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. about two young people, Bonnie and Clyde, who found a Chitauri gun after this attack and use it to become high-tech bank robbers. And so Vulture here, it's like they took that same story and went big with it, but it is one of the best motivations for a villain. I don't know if he's number one. I don't know that you can best Loki in Avengers for me at the moment yet. But yeah, Vulture's going to be my number two favorite villain in all the movies they've done. It doesn't hurt that it's Michael Keaton, too, a guy that knows how to act. Yeah, Michael Keaton, you, you mentioned it before, but yeah, just to walk through, he came onto the scene as a comedian, and taking the Tim Burton Batman movie was his way of changing his image, that he wanted to become a serious actor, and with Clean and Sober and then those Batman films, he didn't crack a smile. It was always a shock to people that he didn't play it like Adam West, fell into obscurity, came back to talk about being typecast with Birdman, and then continued on to do good work. I want to say I really enjoyed him recently in Spotlight, and as the debatable founder of mcdonald's in the recent the founder yeah he did fall away to the point that i honestly thought we would never see him again he felt like something left in the 90s i think the last film i saw of his was jack frost oh <laughs> that is the kind of film that makes you not do another film it, it does feel like when tarantino uses him jackie brown it's because tarantino loves finding those actors that have fallen out of grace yeah, yeah. and that was even before Jack Frost. Ooh, ouch. <laughs> Tarantino can only lift so much. <laughs> you can't do Jack Frost riding off that Tarantino high. <laughs> but I did see him a couple of times in stuff I liked. He did comedy in the Will Ferrell movie, The Other Guys. And I'm like, oh, Michael Keaton. He was good in that. We did talk about him in Robocop. Yeah. Where he was the bad guy in that, the head oh. of the company. Wow. Yeah, okay. That, I'm talking the RoboCop reboot here, yeah, obviously. the one everyone's forgotten, yes. Yeah, he quickly recovered from that with Birdman the same year, which I did see. But something has happened to him. His face has kind of crackled. He's gotten old. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's called age. He wears it well. I mean, I think he's a great character actor now because he does have those creases, because his face can give dramatic readings that a young face cannot. I just think his face looks evil, though. I mean, having seen Birdman, having seen this, having seen RoboCop, those lines in his face do not make him look like he could be the jovial comedian he once was. I think that these lines harden him, is what I'm saying. I know he got older. I'm not trying to make fun of him for doing so, we all will. Don't age shame him. No, I'm not. I'm just saying he looks harder. 
And so I think he's well cast here as a construction worker. He's kind of pulling a bit of a Mr. Mom thing out, you know, with the construction worker. He was also good in Multiplicity where he played a construction worker. And I just feel some of those earlier roles are helping me believe him to be an everyman who is still a upstart. I mean, he's owning his own construction company when we see him, but he's still being put out of the big job he took the loans out for by the government. But he hired a crew. The reason he continues to do it isn't for himself or his money. He feels a responsibility to his family. We see him holding up a crayon drawing his child did of the Avengers in the very first scene. That's going to be a big deal because that's something we're going to find out was drawn by Liz. Yeah, I did like the remark that, yeah, kids aren't going to draw cowboys and Indians anymore. Now they play Avengers and, I guess, Chitari. And it's not cowboys and Indians, it's Native American. Again, they're really tapping into red state anger. They're really the PC thing, the class issue. Rather than go vote for Trump, these guys are going to take this alien tech and they're going to go into business for themselves. And it's true. Are they that different than Tony Stark other than they're just a smaller operation? Well, they steal. Well, you don't think Tony has done that? I mean, I think that ethically they're on the same page. He never stole, and he didn't even realize his weapons were being stolen out from under him. It was carefully written to make sure Ironmonger takes all the blame for anything bad that happened. Tony didn't do it. Tony's dad didn't do it. They were genius inventors who created this stuff, whereas Tombs, he has a genius inventor with him. I mean, the ability to tap into Chitari technology isn't going to be overly easy. You've got Michael Chernus as Phineas Mason, who in the comic books is the tinkerer, the guy who makes a lot of villains tack for Vulture and Rhino and all of that. Yeah, we jump ahead eight years, and I gotta say, if you were worried that he'd look foolish or that this would be Birdman 2, I think they did a good job with the suit. Yeah, they always come up with ways to have it make sense <laughs> in the modern world. Like, again, you read those comics, it is a dude, an old dude, dressed as a bird, flapping his arm. Yeah, like, Bob Mackie style, yeah, it looked like a share outfit. <laughs> Here, Keaton, he's got that, like, flight jacket that kind of has that ruffled collar that could, I guess, kind of look like the crest on a vulture, and he's got that mask so he could breathe while he's flying, and yeah, there's, like, hover technology in those wings. They, they do a good job in updating this, so it's not just silly looking. I mean, dude's still got claws, so he could pick stuff up with his feet <laughs> and fly away, but it's more believable. They give everything a reason, and... Those wings are huge. The hover technology, it's got propellers in the wings, so you believe it can fly. It feels like something in an Iron Man world instead of, yeah, the guy in the bright green suit. And he was really, as my cousins in Maine would say, he was wicked old in the original comic books. They've wanted Vulture in the Spider-Man universe a lot. He was going to be the villain in Spider-Man 4 with Raimi. They had approached John Malkovich to do it, and I think that would have been decent casting because the reason Sony kept saying no is you don't want a young kid beating up a geriatric senior citizen in a bird suit. But here, by bringing him down to Michael Keaton, they still call him old man. He is... He's no older than John Malkovich. Yeah, especially no older than John Malkovich would have been when they were looking at doing that film and making it a suit in the Tony Stark world, the same as they did with Falcon, who in the comic books had those... He's got wings, too. <laughs> red wings with feathers on them and everything and making him a modern flight suit. I think they did a good job here with this vulture. They never call him vulture, even. They just 
call him Tombs, but... We don't get Vulture until the end when Spider-Man leaves a note like Vulture Guy or something. Yeah. Mm, okay, interesting. Well, here's what I got to say. The gear looks good. The character is interesting. This conflict is topical. But is this the right character for the movie that's going to directly follow it? Because what we're going to get is not a big, epic, tear-down America kind of story. It's a neighborhood scrap. It's very small. I've got to say the actual scale of this movie feels tiny by comparison to anything other than maybe Ant-Man. Yeah, no, my Ant-Man is my comparison, and I like that. I'm sick of every Marvel film. Like, it's not an Avengers film, but we're still going to make it like an earth-shattering climax where the world is in peril. But none of those people are going to show up to team up to save it for reasons. And what they intentionally did was try to have an everyday villain, an everyman villain, for an everyman hero. So that's how they were matching this up. Iron Man says in this movie, these people are too small time for any Avengers to worry about. It's something like the FBI could do. It's big for Spider-Man, who stops bicycle thieves and gives old ladies directions in exchange for churros, but it's still small time. I think your root question is, is the promise of red state versus blue state that you're getting out of this ever fulfilled because Peter Parker is kind of not really politically aligned in any way, to which I'll say Kevin Feige didn't really intend a red state versus blue state thing. He's been asked in interviews about the Trumpism of Vulture, and he's like, yeah, we wrote this script before Trump was even a nominee. We didn't have Trump in mind at all when we did this, and so that's not what we were going for thematically. Now, that's what he's saying to keep away the controversy. I can tell you he's lying. There's no way that there aren't things in here that are intentionally addressing these issues and come on things get written on the set and rewritten yeah maybe the first draft but they definitely knew what they were doing Trump was running for president for the last two years. They knew about him. I could see it. I just don't know how far those politics go in this film. I feel this is really more about the younger generation. You know, you get Spider-Man, and I kind of like this conflict. He's a YouTube star, I guess. He's making an iPhone video recapping Civil War, and now he's got to go back to that regular life, dealing with this short-term fame that he had and trying to get that back. That's going to be the more relatable thing to who this movie is geared towards. I love the pacing of this movie, truthfully, in the beginning. You do? Say. In yeah. the beginning. Okay. <laughs> I was like, my eyes, I was like, oh, this is going to be a hard one then. <laughs> no, no, in the beginning. The fact that we get Vulture's origin story told in eight minutes, eight years earlier, then the Marvel logo comes. It's like an entire prologue. We get the Marvel logo. We start with the Sony logo, and I thought it was a big deal. We didn't get the Marvel logo. They teased us, for those of us who were paying attention to such things, after the Vulture's origin story. We get the Marvel logo. And they changed the Marvel song, right? They put in that TV theme for Spider-Man. Yeah, the old 60s one. Heavily orchestrated. Look out, here comes the Spider-Man. That I'm looking forward to the soundtrack arriving in the mail just so I have the deep orchestral version of that. I don't know if you saw it in IMAX, Jacob. They also changed the IMAX countdown. Every movie has that countdown with mind-blowing images in 3D. It was all Spider-Man, red and yellow. So they're really trying to make it feel Spider-Man-y. I enjoyed that. And then, yeah, we get the recap of Civil War. I like just seeing the Battle of Civil War from a cell phone video, and it made me think of Peter Parker, how when he'd take pictures for the 
Daily Bugle, he'd web his camera to a certain spot and just aim the lens in one direction and hope the action took place in front of it. The original creator of the selfies. Yeah, exactly. To see the Civil War battle from a camera just left on, to see Ant-Man in the distance and then War Machine just flying past, I thought that was a good fun laugh. Yeah, and his utter joy at it all. Never having been on an airplane, never having been anywhere other than New York. You feel that. Just his hotel room. I mean, he could have just spent his whole time flipping on the bed and and had a great time. I love the line, yeah, there's more? (laughs) Like, not realizing how big that room was. Yeah, it's infectious. This actor expresses joy better than either of the previous two actors. Part of that is by design. There was a mopiness built into the previous movies. But yeah, I think that this is absolutely right. If you want to get millennials interested, that's what they do. They document everything they experience on their phones. And this gets us right into his world and his mindset. I'm going to say this up front. Tom Holland, best Spider-Man ever put on film, best Peter Parker ever put on film. Oh, easily, easily, yeah. I mean, I instantly liked him in Civil War. I thought, I'm like, wow, okay, this has got me excited for a Spider-Man film. I didn't really like Tobey Maguire that much, even though I liked the, the first couple of films. I liked Andrew Garfield, but yeah, Tom Holland, easily the best. I liked Tobey Maguire's Peter Parker. I thought he was a good Peter Parker. Every time that squeaky voice came out of Spider-Man, it gave me a problem. I liked (laughs) Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man, but his hipster stuttering Peter Parker, I hated that in the first movie. It got better in the second one, but I still never really liked his Peter Parker. Here, we've got an actor who, yes, he looks like a teenager and is pulling off both really well. Tom Holland, thank you for coming to the States. Thank you for going to Georgia. Thank you for doing this movie. I thought you could be the best when I saw you in Civil War. You've proven it. Right. And so with no origin here for him, his arc really is about abandonment. At the beginning here, he feels like I have a father figure in my life. Tony Stark likes me. Tony Stark is giving me a suit. Tony Stark thinks that I can be next in line. I'm apprenticing for Avengership. And what he's going to find out very quickly when he returns home, I'm being outsourced to your limo driver. You never return my phone calls. The often played in the trailer scene of him reaching for the door and the kid thinking it a hug. You get the sense that he wants more out of Tony than Tony wants out of him. I liked this as an inversion of the hero's journey. You know, I think about the Campbellian hero's journey and you have the refusal of the call, right? The moment where you say, I'm not going to be a hero. This is an inversion. (laughs) They refuse to take his call. He's like, I'm ready to be a hero and Happy Hogan will not return an umptitude of text messages. If you're viewing this from a grumpy old man perspective, a baby boomer, or Gen Xer, you're like, that's right, those millennials, like, they just expect to be superstars. But I do feel like Tony Stark is the jerk here. Like, you called him up to the major leagues. He went from freshman baseball team to playing in the World Series. What do you expect? Yeah, you gave him this million-dollar suit. Give him something to do. Like, the guy's got superpowers. I don't feel like Peter Parker's being too whiny here, wanting to play a bigger role. Yeah, you gave him great power Now comes your responsibility to take care of him. And I think Tony does realize that towards the end, that maybe he has been too hands-off. But we don't get a whole lot of Robert Downey Jr. Certainly not a movie for him or really any adults to learn much. This is a movie for the youngest audience. And so it will be for this Spider-Man to learn how to stand on his own. I really felt like there was a metaphor. They put Tony Stark and Iron Man in the trailer so much because they want to sell you this as Iron Man 5, I guess, if Iron Man 4 was Civil War. There's a moment where 
the Iron Man helmet flips up and Robert Downey Jr. isn't in it. I felt like that was a commentary on the entire film. I think Downey spent more time promoting this film, and I'm being 100% serious. He spent more time going on talk shows and going on YouTube channels and doing press junkets than he actually spent on this movie. He has said, as his star rose and as they renegotiated contracts, the moment the Iron Man helmet goes down in the film, he's not on the set anymore. (laughs) He's off in his trailer. He may have actually been partying in India, and they just had to go over there to film him. <laughs> Seriously. So he's a cameo in this. And I thought he would have a more minor role. I thought that's why you bring John Favreau out of Mothballs, right? We haven't seen him since Iron Man 3. I'm like, well, Favreau's a guy you could probably get to be on set a little longer. Maybe he wanted a break after directing Jungle Book, something a little <laughs> easier, doing an acting gig. But he's barely in this, too. I feel like every character that's from the other universe is pretty much a cameo with Downey in perhaps a very small supporting role. He looms large because they're always talking about Stark, always talking about him, but he's not in it much. I guess the fact that you have references to the Avengers and the Civil War and you're going to see Stark Tower and there's Iron Man and there's Happy Hope and Pepper Potts is going to come back. I feel like this is the intro comic to how Spider-Man gets back into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I feel like they do a lot of that just to go, look, he really is part of this universe. But I like that he's in his own world. He's in Midtown Science and Tech and... It's been 30 years since I started high school, but I had some flashbacks. I think this is one of the most true-to-life depictions of high school I've seen in a long time. I wouldn't have been able to tell you before seeing this movie, but I had such a flashback. I don't know if you guys as high schools did this, but ours totally had a morning show, like the Today Show, with two awkward students giving quote-unquote school news and doing really cheap video toaster green screen effects. We didn't have that, but I, I have seen like clips of those like on YouTube from real ones, and they are that bad. Did you play F. Mary Kill with Marvel characters in high school? That was striking to me that they referenced the carnal act with the F word here. They don't say the F word, but when you have Betty Brant, this is a Marvel character, Betty Brant. She was J. Jonah Jameson's secretary, played by Elizabeth Banks in the Rami trilogy here. This is Angori Rice, an actress I loved in The Nice Guys. She was a major role in The Nice Guys. Oh, is she the daughter to Ryan Gosling? Okay. I don't think you hire her without having bigger plans for Betty Brandt to do this role. But yeah, that she's playing F. Mary Kill with the Avengers. I was... I was shocked by the bluntness of having 15, 16-year-olds talking about which Avengers they'd like to F. They're going for John Hughes, right? There's a whole 80s thing going on here. It's building up to kind of a prom. It's homecoming, but I was thinking about Pretty in Pink. And John Hughes became the icon that he was to our generation because he treated young people like adults. And he really showed that they had a whole lot more sophistication than adults wanted him to think. We as adults are horrified to think that these kids would play these kinds of games, but no, it's not strange at all, and I think it's very relatable. True. I mean, if I go back and think about myself at 15, I was not playing F. Mary Kill, I was just playing FFF, but... (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, no, I agree that the best part of this film, the stuff that I respond to the best, is the high school drama. I wish it was more a John Hughes film with Spider-Man involved. I mean, we are going to get a Ferris Bueller reference, and they're going to show a clip from the film. Like, I wish it was more of that, and less 
hey, let's throw stuff in from the other Marvel films into this. It was completely intentional. The director, who the hell is this guy? (laughs) I don't know. John Watts? I mean, if you're having Mark Webb direct Spider-Man, it sounds like John Watts should be doing the Electro film. I don't know John Watts. I I looked him up and I still don't know him. I couldn't believe that Cop Car gets you this kind of movie in this day and age. Cop Car? They made a little film a couple years ago about some juvenile delinquents, just kids in a rural area that steal a car and it turns out to be Kevin Bacon, who is a killer that I believe he has money and a dead body in the trunk. You know, I thought it was going to be a lot like Mud, which was, I thought, a good coming-of-age movie. But it felt like a first film. It had some good ideas, but I wouldn't say it was particularly sophisticated or memorable. I guess it's a mild recommend, but very mild. But again, such a small-scale movie... I can't imagine how you wind up doing this next. The only thing I can think of is maybe they liked the way that he treated the kids. Or this is a Marvel film and they don't really care about the director. They just need (laughs) someone to keep the schedule. Yeah, only John Watts knows that for sure. But he made all of these young actors watch a John Hughes movie marathon before they started shooting. And I love John Hughes movies. We reviewed Ferris Bueller on the show last year and I have seen pretty much all the major ones, even the ones he didn't direct, but he wrote and influenced like Pretty and Pink. Everybody forgets he didn't direct that one, but that was Howard Deutsch, Leah Thompson's husband, who directed Pretty and Pink and Some Kind of Wonderful. So I wish they had more of that, though, because when I think of John Hughes, I really do think of realistic high school drama. You know, Pretty and Pink has the across-the-tracks classism and the wonderful smarminess of James Spader. Yeah, no, I'll say my favorite part is later on when it's just Peter getting ready for the homecoming dance. There's no superpower stuff going on, and I think it's like the best stuff in this film. Yeah, you're talking about a 60-second montage set to a yes. song from Kingpin. Actually, I know it's English beat, but I know that song so well from being in the movie Kingpin. But I don't feel like there's enough student drama going on here. Uh, there, I'm not saying there's not enough time devoted to student drama. Okay, thanks okay. for clarifying. Yeah, there is too much time devoted to everything in this film. Really? <laughs> I went back and I looked up the length of most John Hughes films. They're a very svelte 90 minutes, which is about the right time. And the drama is deeper. You've got, with Breakfast Club, one of those kids is being burned by cigars by his dad. The other one is attempting suicide. Here, they try to do an Ali Sheedy Breakfast Club kind of thing with Zendaya. She's my favorite of the high school characters, I'll say that. But she doesn't get a lot of screen time. Again, like Robert Downey Jr., she's all over the marketing for that Disney vibe, but she's not in this movie much. But nothing with these students is dramatic, and they seem to think it is. The biggest thing you've got is Flash Thompson, now instead of being a high school jock, the white guy with the blonde hair, the blue eyes, picking on the nerd... It's another nerd. It's a rich nerd picking on a poor nerd. Yeah, but he's a DJ, which is like the most douchey millennial thing you could do. Mm -hmm. I like this high school. They're all smart kids is what it is. It feels like a specialized, like they'd have to apply to get in here. And what it is, is his money got him in there, but he can't compete with the really smart kids. And so he's second stringer. You know, they have this academic decathlon. Well, he's the alternate. You know, he's just not quite good enough. And uh, he overcompensates that by, yeah, driving around and rich cars and flashing his money and for some reason feels like because Peter is probably the smartest one in the classroom, he needs to be called Penis Parker. 
the one thing I will say about millennials that I don't think of is that they would want to be anonymous. I mean, usually it is about, I'm going to put it on YouTube, I'm going to blog about it, I'm going to tell everyone. Being public and living openly is what comes natural for them. So really, I think it's interesting that the reason I'm convinced Peter Parker doesn't go public and say, hey, everybody, you should like me on Facebook because I'm Spider-Man is only because of Aunt May. Because Aunt May is in a fragile state, they'd never deal with Uncle Ben dying, but we know that some of this is grief, and that he doesn't mind if supervillains come and target him, but he doesn't want her to worry. And so that is the one reason why he's going to keep his identity under his clothes and wait until the school bell to go and do his heroics. Yeah, until his best friend Ned finds out. And yeah, I do feel like Ned, there's the one that wants to put him up on YouTube and have an Instagram account of Peter Parker is Spider-Man because he's going to constantly badger him with questions. I feel like Ned, half his dialogue is, that's awesome. I looked up this actor, Jacob Batalon. He has not done much. He's a Hawaiian actor in his 20s. He really has very little roles, but I like him in this movie. They call him Ned. And in the pre-production stuff, they said he was going to be Ned Leeds, who would go on to become Hobgoblin. Yeah, I don't think they're going there with this Ned. Oh, I thought they might originally just write nerd, and then they're like, we'll take the R out. I mean, that's what he is. He's the nerdy friend that will never be able to be a superhero. Yeah, he wants to put together the Lego set. Well, if I can get nerdy, uh, I'm a little bit upset because... Why would Peter Parker say, hey, you guys know that really old movie, The Empire Strikes Back, with those walking thingies? When he has an AT-AT and an X-Wing in his room and a- He's got a Porkins figure. Who's got a Porkins figure unless you're a collector? Seriously, he and a bunch of those figures were 1995 Power of the Force 2 figures on his shelf. So why is he calling it that really old movie? He would be geeky enough to be Empire Strikes Back. And that Lego Death Star, he says it has 3,803 parts. I have that set. It actually has 4,016 parts, and it's a 2016 set that you have to pay extra for now, let alone in 2020, and it started at $500, so... I thought you were just upset that they put the Emperor on top of the outside. I was! Why would you do that? And also, it is fully built when Genki comes over. It is Genki. See, I just segued into something accidentally by calling him Genki. In Ultimate Spider-Man, Brian Michael Bendis created this character, this overweight Asian named Genki, who is Miles Morales' best friend. I don't know why they didn't call this character Genki. Why did they call him Ned? It is quite obviously the Genki role. I don't know. I feel like they give every one of these high schoolers a name out of the Spider-Man comics, and I don't know if they're going to follow them all up. But Genki is from the Spider-Man comics. I would say that they're not setting him up for superherodom. Or rather, maybe it's right to say sometimes you can be heroic without having to put on an outfit. And we're going to see him succeed both by being the man in the chair, what he aspires to be, the tech, the guy that aids Peter on some of his missions. And he does get like one blast in there. He does take out a baddie towards the ends. But the point is comic relief and a reminder that there is a life of youthful innocence that Peter will lose if he raises into adulthood. Again, his conflict is he's so eager to join the Avengers, he sometimes forgets what he could be missing, the fun times of just playing with Legos. And I think that's what's key to Spider-Man for me, is that conflict is he wants to have that life, whether he's in high school, whether he's a 20-year-old, 
world and he's trying to date MJ, but he's always pulled in by having to be a superhero. He is that working class superhero. You know, he can't just be go off to India and party like Tony Stark. And so I do think they capture that. I think they hit that beat too many times in this film. He misses too many high school things throughout it, but they get it right. They just do it way too much. Yes. And they even mention he's quit a bunch of his clubs. He's quitting the academic decathlon because it's in Washington, D.C., and he feels he has to stay in New York because if Tony Stark calls, they need to, like, Tony Stark couldn't just show up in Washington, D.C. for him because, I mean, Tony came from Germany to New York and back in 48 hours to get him, but he's really afraid about not being able to be found. I think he does feel the abandonment most when he finally gets happy on the phone and happy's like, we're moving out of New York. I think Peter was thinking, I'm in New York, the city with Avengers Tower, where the Avengers live. And so now that they're moving upstate to that new compound we saw in Civil War, he's like, well, what does that mean for me? Right. And I think that's why he overdoes it. It's like, if I can prove that I can take care of here, maybe you'll take me with you. Maybe you'll actually pay attention and be present in my life. He so clearly needs a father figure here. And so, yeah, we have... One of many montages, this one to Ramon's Blitzkrieg Bop, in which he's trying to help people that really don't even need help or need his kind of help, including Stan Lee. Yeah, what I feel like, you know, Kick-Ass was kind of a parody of Spider-Man. And I feel like it, it's gone full circle because I do get a <laughs> kick-ass vibe with Spider-Man trying to go around and save the day. And he's just not very good at it. And he stops a robber and gets a bike, but he didn't know whose bike it was that was stolen and just has to leave a note. And all he gets is a churro. I thought it was a good little montage. I feel like start the movie this way. Again, I feel like so much of this movie could be cut. I want to get the best scenes and yeah, start it here and tell us where he's at post-Avengers Civil War. I don't know that I agree with starting here because I really, one of my favorite parts of this whole movie is the opening where Peter's doing his video blog and it's the first time I'd ever even entertained the thought of wanting a movie to be found footage or a Marvel movie going found footage. But if it was Peter continuing to do this kind of video log, I really like it. I love that part of it. But I will agree with you. I mean, this movie is called Spider-Man Homecoming. It should really be called Peter Parker Homecoming. I mean, the fact that he's Spider-Man does, again, rule every conversation. But he spends more time out of the suit than in it. And I don't know exactly what scene I would cut because I like so much of it. Especially when he's in gym class and Zendaya is reading of human bondage. You know, a story about a orphan who lives with his aunt and uncle. And then the Captain America cameo of being on the video. Like, we used to have Arnold Schwarzenegger and Mr. T tell us to work out. Yeah, it's not the Arnold Schwarzenegger challenge anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's the Captain America challenge, and I laughed so hard when the gym teacher's like, I think he's a war criminal now, but whatever. I just like that he was standing on the wrong side when, like, Captain America points. I like those little details. Well, that's the obvious joke, and this is written by the people who did the remake of Vacation. They go for some groaners, but... Wow, this is so much funnier. I, I wouldn't have imagined. <laughs> yeah, here's what I would say. We're heading towards a villain that doesn't really match the issues of high school. Typically, in the past, in the other Spider-Man movies, Tobey Maguire fought a father figure. And since he needs a father figure here, you might think that that is kind of what Michael Keaton should play for him. But honestly, this is just about weapons and neighborhoods. Keaton's barely in the movie. I figured because Tony Stark and Happy Hogan, they're the neglectful fathers, Uncle Ben's out of the picture. The conflict would be kind of what we saw with Tobey Maguire and Willem Dafoe, the Green Goblin, like where he was seeing him 
as a father figure being pulled to the dark side. I thought maybe we're going to get a retelling of that story, but no, they don't really go forward with those daddy issues. And nor does this alien guns on the street storyline. I mean, it's slow to develop here. I mean, the first, oh, it takes so long. First time we get it, ATM. You know, we've all seen this from the trailer. It's fun. The Avengers is Halloween mask. The gang using the purple technology. I'm glad they used different lines in the movie than the trailer because it gave new laughs. Apparently there were a lot of quips while Spider-Man was fighting. And so the line like, oh, you're not the Avengers, Hulk gives it away, isn't in the movie. There's different jokes that are made it funnier. I'm going to just tell you, Arnie, my six-year-old is going to disagree. She wanted to see this movie because of that Hulk line in the trailer. And I asked her afterwards, do you recommend Spider-Man at Home? And she's like, no, it didn't have that line. I was very disappointed. (laughs) And this is from a (laughs) six-year-old. See, I liked the... Thor Hulk, glad to finally meet you guys. Yeah, that I did like that. Those were the two not in Civil War. There's a bodega across the street that we see Peter Parker go to. He's chummy with the owner. When he's battling these crooks at the ATM, we're going to see one of those lasers like blow up that bodega. And I'm like, oh, is this going to be the Uncle Ben moment? Are they going to change it here? But no, he gets away and the cat lives. Yeah, that's actually a, the title of a famous screenwriting book is Save the Cat. So I was like, that must be the one reason why we have him pet Murph there. That uh, There's <laughs> (laughs) no real reason to have these neighborhood figures except for Peter to learn that he's part of a community. And at least we didn't have an interstellar moment of him running through the burning building. (laughs) Murph! I need to find you, Murph! (laughs) Okay, Arnie, you love the Murph. But again, I feel like another thing that this movie should do, since it is going to be smaller in scale, is all these people should play a part in his maturation. That he doesn't need a single father figure. That we see this Delmar Deli guy in one scene, we think it's going to be something. He likes his aunt, as so many people in this neighborhood do, and then it just kind of goes away. Yeah, same with the larb thing where the Thai waiter gives her free rice pudding and everybody's hot for Aunt May is, is, I guess, a running joke. I thought that was going to be a sinister thing when she got the free pudding. <laughs> like, I wondered if it was meta commentary on the fact that after Civil War, everybody walked out talking about how hot Aunt May was. I was surprised Tony never goes to see Aunt May because he's got such a thing for her. Ironically, they kind of dress her down in this one. They're not playing up her beauty in this film. I think they play her up plenty. I mean, again, let's give her some sticky rice pudding. I mean, yeah, they're testing the boundaries <laughs> there of double entendre. But it's frustrating to me that Marissa Tomei's a good actress and all she's asked to do here is be hot. And I feel like if he's going to learn that I'm going to choose this community, then it should be these characters should matter more than just bits in a montage. Yeah, this film... I- I guess it was mainly filmed in Georgia, but I did feel like when they go to Queens, I'm assuming this was actually filmed in New York, it feels like an actual community where, I agree, Stuart, you feel like you're setting up that this is all about Spider-Man, you know, seeing that this community could be his father figure, that there's a relationship there. And I think the Tobey Maguire films, especially that second one, which I was kind of cool on, but I feel like, you know, you get that subway scene where they all carry Spider-Man, he's been damaged, and like you get that vibe here. This It never really pays out in this film. All right, this movie has two huge flaws in my mind. The first is they hit the same beat too often, too many times. There's the fact that nobody's cheering for Spider-Man, that he's not really seen as heroic. He doesn't even seem to be a superhero in this film. Like, I guess there's some YouTube clips, but it's not like someone, I, I don't know, I guess some people recognize him, but he doesn't seem to be a thing in New York. Yeah, he's not considered an Avenger. When they're playing F. Mary Kill, Betty isn't even thinking about 
Spider-Man. I'm not sure how deep her roster goes, if she'd consider effing Vision or marrying Hawkeye, he seems like a good family man, but Spider-Man... When Liz says she's into Spider-Man, she's seen as like an outcast, like that's a bad choice, and they talk about how he might be hideously burned or deformed under that mask. I think part of it is he has a secret identity, something the Marvel movies haven't really kept to very much. He's seen as the outsider. Later on, we're going to have somebody yell yay Spider-Man when Spider-Man screws up, and then they turn around and yell yay Iron Man when Iron Man saves the boat. There's just, that note is hit too many times. The other big problem I have is Peter Parker is not heroic in this movie. He's doing a patrol, he stumbles upon the ATM thing, and it's, all right, he's patrolling, that's a little bit active, that's fine. The next beat of it is he's not searching out the arms dealers. He called Happy and said there's arms dealers. Happy's like, yeah, we don't care. They're going to go to a party, and he's going to possibly swing in a Spider-Man. My biggest moment of suspense is, will he really swing in a Spider-Man? <laughs> you see that done half the time, and you see them not do it half the time. He gets distracted by seeing a blue explosion in the distance. He's not tracking these arm dealers. He just so happens to be looking the right direction at the right time. And oops, this happens to be connected to that ATM robbery. Is it just too hot button to have the guns in these schools? Is that just something they do? It's just too heavy for a Marvel movie because certainly it would help. If this is all about being in high school, to have these weapons already there and not have this be a distraction from the storylines would be cleaner screenwriting. That's actually going to be a turning point for the Donald Glover character who's trying to buy some guns when Spider-Man sees these lights going off. Yeah, I don't think they want to get into school violence. Yeah, and I get that. I mean, I'm not advocating that that would be the best way. I just wish that it wasn't, as Arnie points out, random that, oh, I just happened to be standing on the roof when this explosion happens, and now I'm going to go back to that plot line. And eventually he does shoot them with a spider tracker. Spider-Man has a lot of tech in this movie the bad guys might have alien tech but he has stark tech and I, he's doing things i've never seen a spider-man do well spider tracers all the stuff he does before they turn off the training wheels protocol is stuff spider-man has done in the comics peter parker being in his 20s being a scientific genius in this universe again no organic webs he has web shooters like the comics he makes them he, they actually make a point of showing in science class while they're lecturing about something else he's actually making the form but the rest is Stark Tech, but you mentioned he puts a spider tracer on them. Keep in mind, the villains came to him. He happens to be walking back to the party and stumbles upon a piece of the gun. He's examining that, which is active. He accidentally fires it or does something. It discharges and does no harm. Yeah, he takes it to school and he's like in shop class and beating it with a hammer. Yeah, that seems smart. It did lead to a funny joke though because I too had a shop teacher who only cared if you cut your fingers off or not. That's about all. But the villains then somehow can trace the discharge to him so they come to him. He's not trying to find them again and he just happens to use a spider tracer on them. And this conflict is dealing with minor villains like i don't know what shocker is sinister six i'm shocked they are setting up the sinister six in this i was prepared for vulture and he's really just called as a as a last recourse because they can't get the spider-man off their fender they're like all right come in have him yanked up to the sky and spider-man nearly dies here that in saving himself with a parachute he almost drowns yeah he doesn't even save himself i think it automatically comes out like part of the training wheels protocol yeah but he's tangled in it 
He's just lucky he's over water instead of land. And yeah, like we mentioned earlier, Iron Man's got to come in and save him from drowning. Tony Stark isn't. Tony Stark's in India at a party that fortunately has Wi-Fi, but he's remote controlling the suit. They're doing that again. I didn't like it when they did that in Iron Man 3, that Tony Stark can be the joystick hero. There's no reason for him to ever put the suit on. No reason at all. Just go to a Starbucks with Wi-Fi and you're good. But I think they're working that well into this plot because this plot is about why won't you be in my life? Why are you an absentee father? And we're going to find out the girl he's crushing on also has those issues and that's going to come in in the superhero realm. But I want more Vulture Spider-Man battle. It needs to be personalized and it needs to be more often and they barely come together and they really don't have a beef beyond, hey, I want to be able to sell my guns and you don't want me to. Up until the very final one, I get that you don't want to have your best moments early, but all their battles are really truncated. The fact that Vulture grabs him and drops him, I know they're selling us again. Peter Parker isn't strong enough. He's not a big enough hero and has to be saved by Iron Man. Later on, he's going to knock himself out in a truck, not really allowing that battle to happen. But I felt this movie dragged because there wasn't enough action in it until the very end. Civil War had the best battle in the middle, and all the superhero films usually have some kind of big battle. I go back to the first Iron Man of Iron Man breaking out of that camp. Here, I can't say there's not fights, and again, there is the Washington Monument scene, but it doesn't feel like enough for a movie that runs almost two and a half hours. Yeah, I don't need all the fights. I I feel like when we do get battles in this film, they're very poorly staged, and I don't know what's going on in most of them, except there's two people swinging or flying around, hitting each other. I need drama. I need this pace to move. There's so much unnecessary stuff in here. I feel like open with that montage about how inept Spider-Man is, and then get to Washington, D.C., because this is drama. This is stuff that has me in suspense when these Peter, of course, has missed the academic bull because, what, he's going after the Vulture and he gets locked in Damage Control's warehouse? I did like, this is where... He convinces Ned, who has a Dell computer. I want to point out, Sony didn't produce this movie. We don't have everybody using Sony tech. I was surprised there were Dell computers and iPhones and everything else. This has the least product placement in Spider-Man movie history. (laughs) It does have a Pizza Hut pizza box, and everybody is driving an Audi if they have a cool car. But it really felt much more subtle than in the past. Yeah, and he, what, hacks the suit. They're trying to get rid of the tracker so Tony doesn't know where they are. And they find out there is a program, training wheels on there, which is weird because I feel like the training wheels really come when they activate Karen, which is what he names the voice in the suit. Jennifer Connelly. She was in Hulk, so here she is back in the Marvel Universe. Ang Lee's Hulk, so it's not quite the same. Casting cleverness. She is married to Paul Bettany, who's the voice of Jarvis. And so here you have Paul Bettany's spouse as the female Jarvis for Spider-Man. And again, I think it's a good contrast here. This is Peter. He could be hanging out in the pool eating $9 candy bars. Instead, he's putting on a suit that he thought he knew what to do with. But now that the training wheels are off, he could end up killing people here. He doesn't want to do that. That web slinger is a weapon. Which again is weird because you think the training wheels would have the voice activated Siri telling you like what to do. Hey, in this situation, you might want to use these shooters. Yeah, he's got like 500 different kinds of webs he could sling now. 
Yeah, but I, I I like the look of the red eyes. It reminded me of something from the comics with just the red pupils. Instant kill activated. I mean, it's almost like Clippy popping up in Microsoft Office. It looks like you want to kill a hostage. Would you like assistance with that? But I wonder if Karen might have revealed herself as he did stuff. Because when he turns her on, it says, congratulations for completing the Training Wheels protocol. Like, he was supposed to figure stuff out on his own. Like a video game you'd have achievement unlocked and have a new power or something and he just jumped right to the big boss at the end karen's there at the end and fortunately she is because now it's it is like siri he can voice control and change the web shooters it's adding slapstick that i don't know that i needed to the scene yeah it feels like it elongates it you know he goes and he battles the vulture kind of he gets stuck in that truck and then yeah we're gonna get a scene where i guess it's to help us learn about this new suit when he's locked up in the damage control warehouse but i guess it's a funny line when he says he's only i've only been here 37 minutes that made our audience laugh but what i feel karen does the reason she's here at this time is to give peter somebody to talk to because you need a character to speak to the audience to let us know their thoughts. So he says really weird things to the suit, like, I'm going to get closer so I can see what they're doing, and things like that. It gives him somebody that he can talk to. And he needs a man in the chair at the moment. The man in the chair is going to be Karen. The reason you often give, like, Holmes a Watson is so they have somebody to espouse to. Although I do feel, I haven't read that many Spider-Man comics, but when I did, he did have a lot of thought bubbles, right? Yeah, every old comic did. (laughs) This is a character that would monologue if no one was around. He would always be talking because he likes to hear himself, frankly. Yeah, they don't do thought bubbles in comics anymore. That has become passe. They try to be more like movies and convey it through the art. It is considered a bad form to use thought bubbles now. He did use them a lot back then, but it is... Yeah, giving us that kind of a feeling here. So that's why she comes out at this time. And again, the the stuff I like here with Karen is not his explosive web grenades that he now has. It's when they get into the relationship stuff, when he's talking about Liz. And if you've seen the movie Her with a computer <laughs> voiced by Scarlett Johansson, yeah, you, you get kind of those moments. Oh, why don't you just tell her that you like her? Why don't you just say that you're Spider-Man and try to kiss her? There's too many scenes of Spider-Man fumbling. I mean, I get that these are effective and less is more like if this were concise if we were a half hour earlier in the movie and we had only had one other instance with alien technology i would be okay with this fumbling i think what it is is at this time starting to feel fatigued i'll go ahead and say it i I feel a little bored because it is so small scale yeah arnie did you pull the watch out i feel like we've been in this movie forever at this point I did check the watch. I w- the first time I saw this movie, I went just to enjoy a Marvel movie. But I did find myself checking the time, basically because I now know the rule of thumb. Every 30 minutes, the film's focus should change. And I'm like, I'm really tired of seeing him fumbling. How close are we to that hour mark? How close are we to that 90-minute mark where something's going to change? Yeah, this feels like a 90-minute first act. And again, when we get to the Washington Monument, he gets back. He's missed the academic bowl. And all his friends have gone up into that Washington Monument, and he's found out, what, from Karen, that that glowy thingy that Ned has is actually a bomb. And I guess when it goes, it gets activated when it goes through the x-ray machine. Yeah, the radiation in the x-ray machine for security before going into the Washington Monument activates the bomb. And it is a good scene. This is perhaps the best action scene in the entire film. 
But this entire diversion, when I was doing the plot summary, I skipped the entire trip to Washington, D.C. because I realized it added nothing. He put a spider tracker on them and followed them to this. But he learns nothing about the overall villain here. All he does is miss the academic decathlon. Flash gets no answers right. I liked that. Yeah, and leave it to Flash that he would be the one holding the trophy during all of this. He's the yeah, one save the trophy first. Yeah, trying to get out of the you know pushing his way past everyone else to get out of the elevator that's going to be wobbling. Yeah, they took this straight out of the beginning of Superman too, <laughs> saving people in the elevator. It's a little contrived as to why it blows up then and puts them in this kind of peril. But as far as just yeah having something exciting happen, I think this movie is straining with being so claustrophobic, being so neighborhoodly. It really needs to move. It really does. Marvel movies and movies in general, I've always been taught are big. You do the biggest thing. You do the most that you can. That's what audiences come to the big screen to see. It feels counterintuitive and very small screen. Like this might work better as a TV show than it does as a movie. Is there a reason that Spider-Man is scared of height when he climbs that monument? I feel like this is really weird because he wants to be with the Avengers. He's been an Avenger for a short while, but then he goes back and like, oh, now all of a sudden I'm scared of heights. Well, you fought Giant Ant-Man. Well, first of all, Giant Man was nowhere near as tall as the Washington Monument. Giant Man was about 50 feet tall, and as this movie points out, the Washington Monument's about 10 times that. But more importantly, I think this is a metaphor. He's not really afraid of heights. He doesn't have acrophobia. What he has is he's never been this big before. It's a symbol for maturation right. of him growing his powers and growing what he's taken on. It just, he needs a moment to accommodate it. And again, the best shot in 3D, my biggest reason for saying see this, our audience, it was a very vocal audience. They collectively gasped when you saw this 3D shot of the ground. But you're right, Jacob. I mean, there are skyscrapers in New York that are bigger than the Washington Monument. This is not to scale. And you just have to go with this as symbolic and not because it's logical. He would have been at a higher point than this. And this is an exciting scene. I feel the tension. I feel the drama there. I, I like the joke when Karen tells Spider-Man he's hanging upside down and to kiss Liz. That throwback to the McGuire one. Yeah, I like that. And Liz Allen, we haven't really... Not Liz Allen. Liz Allen is the comic book character that I'm going to keep calling her by accident. But yeah, I haven't talked about her. Liz was Flash's girlfriend in the early comics. And one of the people who made fun of Peter, while Flash continued to make fun of Peter, Liz would go on and actually start liking Peter a little bit and seeing beyond the glasses to the boy he was. Here, played by an actress who also hasn't done very much. She's supposed to be a senior and so they got a 28-year-old in here. I don't know Laura Harrier from anything ever. I, she did a couple seasons of One Life to Live. Yeah, soap opera. And she's good. I think it's nice to have a cast of fresh faces when they can do the part. These people are ready for the big time. They're good. So it's pleasant. It's a nice surprise to see they're not going back to the typical faces. Oh, I disagree. I don't think she's good at all. I do not like her in this movie. She gives me nothing as to why Peter likes her. I don't think that her character is given much to do. I don't think that she's drop-dead gorgeous so that he would just like her for her looks. She's supposed to be the head of the academic decathlon, but she doesn't come off as super smart. She's not the one answering questions when Flash gets them wrong. I don't know why he likes her, and I don't like her myself. 
Well, that's the problem with the writing. I think she's a good actress in this film. Like that, when they're going to homecoming and she's like rolling her eyes to her dad, I'm like, yeah, that's what my daughters do when I'm talking about stuff, just rolling those eyes while they're looking at whatever on their phones. I feel like the actress is good. I agree the writing. I don't know why she likes Peter. It seems like a really weird thing for a senior girl to be going after a sophomore guy. And there's no reason in this film. I guess she's just really into brains. Yeah, I take it to mean that she's been without a father, too. We're getting towards that big reveal. I'll hold my thoughts on that for now. But we haven't seen her home life. But we will learn that basically, yeah, she grew up without a father, just like he grew up without a father. She admires his intelligence. And, you know, maybe the fact that he's always disappearing is a draw, too. She can never get a beat on him. And Michelle, it took me a while to learn her name. I think they do that <laughs> intentionally. But she also likes to play coy and be like, oh, I'm only here to give you the middle finger and uh, lower your self-esteem with a quip. But she's also keeping tabs. Every now and then, they'll have a scene with her looking with longing when Peter is running away. Yeah, I think it's pretty obvious that she has a crush on Peter. At one point, she's like, I'm not a stalker. I I just am aware of what's going on, but she knows what classes he's dropped. Yeah. At the very end, at Homecoming, I noticed, and I'm bringing this up now because I don't think we're going to talk about Zendaya again because she's not really a part <laughs> of this movie, but she like crosses her arms and leans forward like she notices him running away. Liz obviously notices because he's her date, but what Michelle has in this, I like her character though. Of all the high school students, I like Peter, I like Ned. I like Michelle because she is truthfully funny. They use her sparingly. I like the scene where she talked about the slaves at the Washington Monument. Although I did look that up. Nobody knows for sure. It's just assumed that slave labor was used because slave labor was always used around that time. But I think her lines are funny. She comes off as smart. She wins the academic decathlon for them. And yeah, the fact that at the end, she's going to say, my friends call me MJ. They've got big things planned for her as the new Mary Jane. But she's not Mary Jane. She's Michelle, her own character, which is a good thing to do. I think Mary Jane was epitomized by Kirsten Dunst. So I don't, I'm glad they made this a different MJ. I wish the movie could decide, settle, and find the plot line that is going to best serve the story they're trying to tell. I don't have a problem with this being a teen thing, but then when we get pulled out of that with the weapons thing, it makes all that other stuff kind of useless. It's Spider-Man. He missed the party. He missed the academic bowl. Now what? He's going to drop out of high school and go after armed dealers. He's just missing stuff all over the place. Like, we get it. We got that beat. Move on. Mm -hmm. What I wish is that there were better high school dramatics if we're going to spend so much time on them. You know, they say that Michelle is trying to be like the Ali Sheedy, but where's the moment where she dumps her purse? Where's the payoff for why she's so quirky? I'm just glad they didn't put the makeup on her like they ruined Ali Sheedy's character in Breathless Cloud. <laughs> and I think about Pretty in Pink, where's our ducky? Maybe that's Ned, but Ned never really gets a plot of his own. He's always there just to support Peter. At the homecoming dance, I think he has a date. He's at the dance, but he didn't have a date for Liz's party earlier. If you're going to give me a high school flick, give me a high school flick that tells me something about today's generation. If you're going to make a superhero flick do that, I think maybe it's because there are 10 writers on this with different impulses, but what you end up is neither fish nor fowl, and it tries to be both and excels at doing neither. 
Yeah, I agree. It's not that we dislike either world, but it, it feels like a schism that they can't marry the high school world with the arms deal. And maybe they really should have made Donald Glover one of the high school kids. Well, Donald Glover is, is Aaron Davis, who in the Ultimate Comics universe, where Genki is from... He's the prowler, a thief, and they kind of play to that. He's like, oh, anti-gravity devices, I could climb stuff, so maybe they are going there later, but he's the uncle of that African-American Spider-Man I was talking about. Okay, but can he be in the school? I mean, he's too old. They're trying to cast young people. That's the problem. They don't want to make this about criminals in high school. Again, if they want it, yeah, if you're, I don't know, Columbine or something like he's trying to prevent, but they don't want to do that. Yeah, no, I don't want them to do that. But I just feel like it would be helpful for him to have a relationship with this guy other than the suit showing him some video footage and tracking him down at a parking garage. I even think they might have been able to do it a little bit better if they had played up Flash's bullying a bit more instead of just name-calling and maybe had the Vulture be Flash's dad. Flash is the rich kid in the car showing off all his money. What if that money was ill-gotten goods? I mean, again, we're back at Kick-Ass with Red Mist and the Mobster. But yeah, having something that ties back more than what we're going to find out later that Adrian is Liz's dad. And we're going to take a long time getting there. Spider-Man's finally going to be active, though. He's finally going to decide, I'm going to investigate this thing, which has been my big mission all along anyway. But it's going to be Karen who's going to point him to Aaron Davis, Prowler, who's then going to say, my cousin's in some stuff. I guess his cousin is Mac Gargan, who's the scorpion from the comics. He's got a big scorpion tattoo on this neck. What's so weird, he's played by Michael Mando, and I don't know if you watch Better Call Saul, but he's a big character on there, Nacho Varga. Great actor on that show. And I'm like, oh, Nacho's here. And he doesn't do anything. <laughs> like, I guess that's for the next movie. I'm in the Clone Club. If you watch Orphan Black, he was on that for a couple seasons too. I don't know this actor, but I know the character he plays. And the Scorpion tattoo, I thought, was a nice callback. The fact that he's buying high-tech arms. Even though this isn't Sony Spider-Verse, it does feel like they're building their Sinister Six. <laughs> it really does. They've got two shockers. The first shocker goes away. He was Jackson Bryce in this movie, who is actually one of the Kingpin's enforcers in the comics. But here, he was the first shocker. And... It's Vulture's only kill. Vulture's a thief, but he's mostly a businessman. When Jackson Bryce calls him an old man and Tombs fires him. We knew he's bad news because he was late during that prologue scene, too, to work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's face it. Nobody likes Logan Marshall Green. We couldn't wait for him to die in Prometheus. That's what you get for being a fake Tom Hardy. We don't like you. <laughs> <laughs> Melt it. Always use a real Tom Hardy if you got one available. <laughs> I thought it was Tom Hardy. I was like, oh, cool. He's in this? No. No, because he's not doing some weird voice. And then we've got Herman Schultz, who is the classic name for the Shocker. He's going to become the second one in this film. I did like with the Shocker, like in the comic, his outfit is like a quilt, you know, to pad him from the electrical shocks. And they kind of do have those yellow sleeves he wears that look quilted. Yeah, I, I think it's more the first guy, but he has like a quilted coat he wears. No, but then the second one does the same thing. I'm like, did he take his jacket after he got vaporized? <laughs> but yeah, Toombs accidentally kills the first one. He thinks he's just going to threaten him with an anti-gravity gun. Nope, he happened to pick up the disintegration ray and i think this is going to be a turning point for tombs but he's never going to be that bad a villain this murder he does is completely accidental 
Yeah, because they are working so hard to humanize our villain, which I think is to his strength. I think it makes him more compelling. I, again, I think in the top tier of their unsatisfying villains, this guy looks cool. He's got real reason, but he doesn't have a real beef. He just wants to sell weapons and make money like Tony Stark on a smaller scale. Yeah, he kills this one henchman. And yeah, all these henchmen, you guys know because of comic book lore that they have the potential to be something fearsome in the future. But these guys just aren't aren't menacing enough to work as heavies in this movie because he has some taser device on his hand when he punches is not enough for me to fear shocker versus spider-man yeah they needed to play shocker up more i also think it would have been fun to explain that his weapon he only had one of them the comic character has two but it's something that damage control actually salvaged from nigeria i read online that that was one of Crossbones' two punching weapons there. If you remember, Crossbones attacked Captain America at the beginning of Civil War with two of them, and Cap ripped one off. And so this wasn't something the Tinkerer built, but something that this first Shocker guy just stole part and parcel from one of the previous raids they've done. But I like what they did with Tinkerer. They just keep calling him Mason here. He never gets his Tinkerer moniker. But what I couldn't understand is there was this fifth goon you know there was a fifth guy on the crew who never gets anything to do and i'm like why is randy here yeah i can tell you he is the one sitting in the truck when the ferry deal is happening that they have decided to do an arms deal on the staten island ferry and that donald glover's character has tipped off spider-man to go here this is how he's going to save the day and be the big hero and finally impress tony stark because inside all these trucks are the alien weapons and all they have to do is hand the keys over. Did you guess that when Tony said, oh, I got some lower level guys working on this, that he meant the FBI? I, I did like that reveal. <laughs> yeah, I like the reveal. I didn't think he actually did anything with it. The movie is told strictly from Peter Parker's and Adrian Toomes' point of view. So when Iron Man says this isn't Avengers level, but there's people for this, I think he's just going to let those people find out about it. I didn't think he tipped off anybody to it. But that Spider-Man gets there and really Spider-Man causes the disaster that happens. I mean, he is webbing up everybody. He throws gargan scorpion off the back of the boat then webs him to the back of the boat where he's hanging there and when he uses taser webs on tombs's gun it starts firing all over the place he webs it to the deck instead of throwing it in the water or something he webs it to the deck where it's going to literally cut the boat in half yeah, and you're going to get this scene where he tries to say, again, I feel like they're trying to do that subway scene again. He's even going to be stretched out on the cross to get that Christ imagery going. But it's really Iron Man that comes and saves the day. Yeah, I mean, this is where they're really working the America's being split down the middle, red versus blue with that. I mean, yeah, the Statue of Liberty right behind him. Mm -hmm. I only wish it was that. I mean, I feel like there are times when, wow, they're really going to take on what we're going through in this country. But this is not the battle for that. Yeah, I never get that vibe. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe this scene is about that because here I think Spider-Man may feel like Tomb. Spider-Man is trying to save the day. When they think he did, there's that guy who goes, yay, Spider-Man. But no, it's the rich guy who comes in, gets the glory. Iron Man 
I don't know that I want him in any more movies because he has now, he's just too powerful. He now has these repulsor devices that he can remote control to push a boat together. He's got a welding laser built into his arm. Yeah. (laughs) And ropes that he can tie the crow's nest together with. What can't Iron Man do really by remote control? For some reason, he's actually in the suit now. I guess they actually wanted Downey Jr. on set a couple of days for this chastising he's going to give Peter. But it feels this is solved way too easily by remote control repulsors. Well, the big reveal is that, yeah, Tony's saved the day. He's going to take away that suit from Spider-Man. And look, I didn't watch all the press stuff for this. I watched like two trailers. And one of those trailers, I'm like, oh, they just told me the whole story. It's going to be Spider-Man. He's going to screw up. Tony's going to get mad at him, take the suit away. Spider-Man's going to have to go back to that old pajama suit that he wears. And he's going to earn Tony's trust back when he takes on the villain, you know, depowered. And you pretty much get that. I'm like, oh, okay, so here we are, I don't know, 90 minutes into this movie. And we just finished that first act. Like, I feel like you take the suit away much earlier. So you have the growth where, you know, if you're not powerful it's the new with great power comes great responsibility you know if you need the suit to be something then then you're nothing basically yeah i i know it works as a moment here usually in act two when you're reaching the end of act two you have the all is lost moment where oh except yeah he can still be spider-man he just doesn't have it he has to go back to the ugly homemade outfit instead of the cool stark suit remind me Why did Tony bring this kid on to begin with? Because that's what I'm struggling with. If you want this kid to not overreach and not go beyond his neighborhood, why did he bring him to Berlin? To steal Captain America's shield, basically? I think there was a problem with that. I know a lot of people really got mad at the Tony Stark character and felt him kind of unforgivable for taking a 15-year-old mm-hmm. into such a major fight. And here, he's even going to admit it. If Cap had wanted to, he could have laid you out real easy. Now, obviously, Bucky and Falcon couldn't, but Cap could have. I don't get entirely... The reason Tony Stark brought him in is because they want to introduce Spider-Man sure. to the Marvel Comic <laughs> Universe. Yeah, I get the out-of-movie <laughs> reason. It's very obvious. We got the rights. Get him in as fast in any way you can and again i think it was a real highlight of that movie to bring spider-man in that way and just be really cool and get in get out and it was awesome but now that we're asked to think about tony and his frustration with this kid always trying to go beyond what he's been set up to do well why did you bring him in then isn't this all on tony stark then that this problem has happened i had a problem that the rest of this movie because of him saving the boat every time i think spider-man can't get through something i think tony stark's gonna show up and fix it helicopter parent yeah perhaps that could be the metaphor they're going for here is he loses his helicopter parent but i don't ever feel stakes again for peter after this moment not that i ever would really entertain the idea that they're not going to let him survive his six movie contract but i also think that they needed to give tony a better reason they give him the line and it almost makes sense hone your skills stay close to the ground be a friendly neighborhood spider-man I think he just wants him to mature both in use of his powers and in years before bringing him on. But that doesn't make any sense why you bring him to Berlin when, you know, you 
could have found Doctor Strange or somebody. Again, that that's why I wish this was the end of the first act, because I like the friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. I like the more down-to-earth tone when, yeah, Peter Parker goes back to school and asks Liz out to homecoming. I, I guess that's, well, I get it. It's a metaphor, homecoming, but there's a literal homecoming in this movie as well. I've got a lot of thoughts about why this ending is not working for me, and a big one is that they should have said it in this high school. I really feel like everything should have come to a head here. The fact that, yeah, okay, because there is this dance, that's how the villain and the hero find out about each other's secret identity is cool, but I just feel like everything should be about this. And I definitely feel like Tony should be at this high school too, that we should have Iron Man versus Vulture and Spider-Man, I don't know, could fight Shocker or something. But I feel like if this is about absentee fathers and their children, then Tony has a role here. I thought that, but I also realized... I went to see this movie the first time for enjoyment and got too deep in my head because of the ways the film wasn't fulfilling me. And so I found myself thinking that and then realizing this is a Spider-Man movie. This has got to be his coming into his own. He needs to defeat the villain. You can't have it be something out of his league for the climax. He has to win the day. He does have a, a moment, I mean, I think later, he, he will stand on his own, and it's pretty intense, actually, under all that concrete. I really, I think it's a really powerful image. You can give him moments where he is doing something on his own, but I do feel like we, we all wanted it, right? We all wanted to see Iron Man and Spider-Man side by side in this film. I, I don't know if I wanted the team up. I was never a big fan of Marvel team up the comic. You know, for me, when this movie really gets interesting is when we find out who Liz's dad is, which I didn't guess. Did you guys figure this out? There's no way to figure it out. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Good. I thought I was slow, but okay, you guys didn't see it coming either. I saw this movie twice. The second time, I was looking so hard. Is there a single clue that Adrian Toomes is Liz's dad? Was the crayon drawing signed Liz? Not that I could tell. Was she an artist in school? No. Like, no. Mm -mm. Yeah, I'm going to be surprised by that revelation because there ain't no clues in this. There's also something mentioned in one of the layer scenes where a henchman's like, I checked your phone and your wife wants you to fix the brake light. Well, if we had seen a scene where Liz backed the car into something, that allows us the chance. You never want to design a murder mystery where we couldn't guess who did it. That would have just been something to reward the people that have been paying extra careful attention. Yeah, I think they cheat. I think that when you open that door, both times I saw it, the audience would. <gasps> I, I was the same way when that's Michael Keaton opening that door. I was like, audibly, I was like, oh, damn. Like, I'm like, okay, now we got some tension going on in this film. I felt like the floor fell out from under me. I thought he was there as the vulture and maybe Liz was a hostage or something. And we were going to find out I knew who you are, something like that. The only thing you get is Michael Keaton gets a strange look on his face when he sees that Spider-Man is rescuing kids at the Washington Monument. And it's going to turn out one of those kids he rescues is his daughter. And w even when the parents come and the parents are all like hugging their kids and Aunt May shows up to hug Peter. I looked in the background. Liz's mom is there. But there's nothing in this movie on two watchings. They mention he has a family. They mention he has a wife. They mention his kid draws something. I can't find anything where either of them talk about the other in a way that anyone could figure this out reasonably. Yeah, but it's a great reveal, 
But do you like it as it unfolds? I mean, I think it's great that for a while, we don't know whether Adrian knows. We know Peter knows instantly. He recognizes him. But they play with us with the fact that he's got the knife and asking questions. Is this just the dad is thinking I'm intimidating to this kid? Or does he realize that this kid, it's really the daughter that ultimately spills the beans. In talking up Peter, she ends up showing that he didn't have an alibi for when Spider-Man appears. And I think the Stark internship that Peter was bragging so much about, just bringing up Tony Stark. Keep in mind, Herman Schultz, Shocker 2, almost quit the crew because Iron Man's on their tail now. You don't mess with Iron Man. So the fact that he's got Iron Man on the brain and this kid's connected to Tony Stark and his daughter says, and he knows Spider-Man and he said, I'm recognizing your voice from somewhere. But this, again, pisses me off. Spider-Man doesn't figure anything out. Toombs is a far more active character than Peter Parker in this. Peter Parker knows because he saw him on the boat. It's Toombs who is the one figuring everything out. And the scene has some nice shots when he stopped at the stoplight. And as soon as he puts it all together, the red light shines on his face and really illuminates him and makes him glow. It's like the anger building up in him and his face is turning red. But as far as the plot point goes, I'm also like, we've seen this before. This is exactly what happened with Harry's dad, Norman Osborn, in Sam Raimi's first Peter Parker film, is replaying this almost exact same tete-a-tete when now they know each other's secrets. Which, again, isn't bad if they were trying to actually pay off that whole absent father thing. I I think this could work, and I, yeah, I felt like, oh, this is a subtle way to remake that Sam Raimi film without the Green Goblin but yeah because these themes don't really pan out I feel the menace when they're in that car and he's asking him questions I think that's when Adrian figures out who Spider-Man actually is I don't think so in the house I think he's just yeah playing the intimidating dad with that knife and everything but I just wish the themes played out better because this it's a cool moment but it would actually have payoff if this was about fathers it's because Peter makes the decision instantaneously. He gets the dad talk, quote unquote, which is basically an arrangement. If you don't mess with my business anymore, I'll forgive this. And, you know, you did save my daughter in Washington after all. So we'll just part company. But Peter gets out of the car intentionally leaving his phone in that car. So he didn't get out of that car ever entertaining the idea that he would take this offer. Yeah, see, I wish there was some conversation he had with like Liz during a dance that made him change his mind that he had a great responsibility. I just I, I was shocked that he ditches Liz and go gets that homemade suit and we're into the third act already. And here we have yet another Spider-Man film, though, where Spider-Man loses his powers, right? Because when he loses the suit, he stops being Spider-Man. This is him deciding, I can still be Spider-Man without that suit. He says, I'm nothing without the suit. And he accepts being nothing. He returns to school life, which, as this film is three-quarters high school drama and one-quarter superhero film, is actually the happier ending. He got the girl. He got to go to the dance. But now he's going to throw all that away. And I did think it was clever how he could lift lockers up. He was keeping web fluid under there. He had his old suit. I'm a little bummed out that the old suit still has those really weird eyes that can squint at everything. Yeah, how did he have squinty eyes with that old suit? How did he make those? Yeah, although I did like... It's funny, he walks out of the school... And he's really in the outfit, which, Stuart, you won't know, but Jacob will, the Scarlet Spider outfit yes. with the blue hoodie and everything. Yep. I love Scarlet Spider. So to see that was cool. 
But then it evolves into something else, like he hadn't finished putting it on or something. I wish they just kept him in the Scarlet Spider hoodie the rest of the time. Yeah, the fact that he runs out and, what, Shocker's waiting there. Adrian, what, knew that he was going to reject that offer or just had Shocker waiting around just in case? Again, this all feels whiplash-inducing. I know that's Iron Man 2's main bad guy, but I'm feeling whiplash here. How did Herman get there? Peter stayed at the dance all of two minutes, and... Adrian just had his thing. The big mission is tonight. They've been dropping the whole time that Tinkerer keeps saying, I can work on that vacuum seal for the big one. And Adrian's been saying, no, no, no. It's when Herman's about to leave that Adrian's like, all right, let's do the big mission. Well, if you're doing the big mission, I think you'd want Herman along as well as Tinkerer, but somehow Herman teleports through space and time to be waiting outside the school when Peter comes out before he can even put on his web shooters. It's a fun fight because I like the way Peter gets smashed into buses and the way he has to fly between all the seats. It's one of the more visually interesting scenes of the movie. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I like, it reminded me of Pretty in Pink. I, I, so much of the con- angst and conflict happens when she walks out of, and it goes into the parking lot with James Spader and Ducky and all that. But keep it here, right? Don't go to the airplane. I just feel like the airplane is a different movie entirely. I'm just going to say, I don't know if you guys have seen it. I actually like it. There's similarities. It's called Sky High. It's a Disney Kurt Russell high school drama superhero film and yeah the main conflict takes place at the high school because it has to do with high school kids and it works so much better the fact that yeah they're gonna go off to some other place to have look this main gadget that Mason's been working on I thought it was gonna be a big deal it's basically a vacuum seal to sneak onto a plane that's it it modifies the wings is all it is it's an upgrade to the wings so that he can latch onto a hull and get through and not have everything have a vacuum Yeah, I kind of like, they first introduced this technology is that basically they can manipulate matter and through walls they can puncture them without disturbing anything. He gets a beer out of the fridge the first time we see it, and now it can be used at high altitudes. That's the way that I take it. So Mm -hmm. they can finally go into an airplane. And what they're robbing, I was happy that this all paid off, that earlier John Favreau had said we're moving everything up north, and I thought that was just going to be discussing abandoning Spider-Man, but no, the big mission is that they're loading all of this onto a plane, the Hulkbuster armor. Thor's belt? What was that about? It is in the comics. I probably can't pronounce it either. Meinenjord? <laughs> M-E-G-I-N-G-J-O-R-D. Some Nordish, th- yeah. The words enchanted belt of strength. I found it interesting, though. They also have Cap's new shield. Yeah, I, I figured that's got to be for an upcoming film. Yeah, but isn't Tony mad at Cap? Aren't they not bros? Why would he make Cap a shield? But interesting. Well, that's why he hasn't given him the shield. <laughs> yeah, that's why they still have it. And yeah, all of that's on this plane. You know what I like that they did with Tombs here? He's the vulture. His MO is that of a vulture. He is taking the scraps people leave behind. He's not going after anything. He's a carrion eater, you know? He's finding these things that DODC's already taken, and he only takes a little. He doesn't steal everything. That That's how he goes without being noticed, is when he was robbing the truck, he only wanted, like, four things. The scraps being left behind are the character actors that are at the school, though. I mean, Hannibal <laughs> Burris is the gym coach, and... Gilfoyle from Silicon Valley as their debate team teacher. I mean, these are characters that I wanted to do more. The neighborhood people. Again, if he is to 
pick this neighborhood. You want it to be about this community. You don't want it to be high in the air in a plane taking a bunch of junk. Actually, the debate coach, we've seen him before. This is a continuing character from the Marvel Universe. He was an incredible Hulk as a grad student who Ed Norton bribes with a piece of pizza. I don't know if you saw this with the principal, who I think was Japanese. He's got a, like a World War II picture on his desk, and he's what, like this grandson or son of one of those Howling Commandos that we saw in the first Avenger. Yeah, I saw that. I was like, why does this guy have medals on his wall why are you a high school principal i thought they were pictures of him and because they were i'm like you were in the army you won medals and now you're a high school principal i'm very sorry for your lot in life no offense to all our high school principal listeners but it is the same actor who played a howling commando in the first movie so it's the same actor that did it okay yeah same exact (laughs) actor from captain america he was the asian howling commando so And he was even in an episode of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. when they did a flashback. And so I guess they're saying this is his grandson as a high school principal and keeps pictures of grandpa in the office. Yeah, but again, my point simply being that I like all these characters. They're barely given screen time. And here we are at the homecoming dance. And I'm not wrong, right? We wanted to be at least spend more time here. Maybe we can go to the plane as an extra climax, but have something that happened here feel substantial and life-changing for Peter rather than him flying back to the lair and getting buried under concrete. That lair scene is one of the best standoffs, but that could have happened at the high school. The vulture could have leveled a building on top of him that the kids didn't have to be in there having their dance, but it could have happened there. And that scene of him having to lift that stuff off of him is actually taken directly from some of the old Stan Lee comics. I think it was like issue 33. Which, it's a powerful moment to me. Like, again, Spider-Man's never a character I really got. It's never been one of my favorites. But the thing that it's about this kid or this working class guy that always just has to find the strength, that's always going to be alone because he's chosen to be Spider-Man. So he's not always going to have the girl. He's not going to have the friend. Like, to me, that is that moment where he has to dig deep within himself. I thought it was an impactful scene when he lifts that rubble up well i thought it was impactful because i thought there was no way he could have survived the impact of that thing landing on him and i was crying bullshit that is the thing because we don't get an origin story here i don't quite know what is his power level here how strong is he he's gonna go way up in the sky and not need oxygen like yeah it he seems as strong as iron man almost yeah, so I gave it a pass when I found out it was from Stan Lee Comics that it, they were referencing and almost recreating shot for shot. Yeah, that's a famous cover. I went back and reread the comic, and it is like the exact same poses and everything. D- do they do the thing with the split face in the puddle of water? All the time in the comics. That's when he has his spidey senses go off. He, he gets a half Spider-Man face. Or sometimes just to remind you, he's thinking about something. He's Peter Parker, but he's in Spider-Man mode. They would do this half Spider-Man face, half Peter Parker face. I don't think they did it very well with this cut because it was the old mask. I think it really hurt it. But that he looked into the water, saw the half and half reflection. It was kind of a nice moment. This is where I thought for sure Iron Man was going to come in and save him and then went, no, he has to save himself. I just didn't know how he survived something landing on him like that. If you'd just shown something, some quick shot to say he could have, because I thought for sure he was dead and that Adrian had taken a second life. Yeah, it looked like he was bleeding from the head, but maybe it was water pouring down. I thought the same thing as there's 
there's water all of a sudden in this building. I don't know if they broke a water pipe. The AC unit <laughs> fell on him, so I think it's water from Okay, from so that's those. what yeah, it was. Condensation. But I got to disagree with you, Stuart, in that I wanted this to take place at high school. I wanted, I think, the opposite. I wanted less interesting high school characters and more interesting Spider-Man characters. I'm not interested in seeing tween movies anymore. When I was younger, I may have watched She's All That, but if that came out today starring Zendaya, I wouldn't go see it, okay? So I don't want that movie I get that this is aimed at perhaps the youngest audience. Well, no, I think Ant-Man's still younger. I think Ant-Man's single-aged people, and this one is tween-age aimed. But I want more fulfilling and more tying into the villain. You want them to have a high school battle. Go back to that unfulfilling, amazing Spider-Man 1. You're describing exactly what they did with the lizard. It was a high school teacher who was the lizard and fought Peter Parker in the high school. You could have that movie. Here, I think that because the high school stuff isn't fulfilling, I don't want the end of Pretty in Pink. I want the end of a Marvel movie. I guess I'm more open-minded. I want to see different things done with the superhero genre. We've gotten so many fights. We're going to get a big galactic one with Infinity War, I think there's room to tell different stories. So you could still have Spider-Man versus a bad guy, but yeah, make it a teenage drama at a high school. And you could take it away from Homecoming, but then do something cool. A plane crashing in Coney Island and him getting webbed to a canister is not my idea of a great climax. I don't even understand, like, another rule in filmmaking, you don't put in unnecessary stuff. Like, you, you got a budget, and I get they got a lot of budget for these movies. But the fact that this... Tony Stark plane that's taking off. I don't know. It goes into invisible mode and like has all these shiny lights over it. And then like Spider-Man goes over like one of the cameras and it, or sensors on it and it kind of turns red at one. I'm like, why are you giving me all this extra flash to look at? It's distracting. Just have a fight on a plane. I, I didn't understand what was the payoff for making this invisible all of a sudden. Well, that is actually coming out. I hear that's technology that will soon be made commercially available. It's like a decade old. I remember when the Harry Potter movies were new, somebody created an invisible cloak. What it is is cameras on one side project on screens on the other side, and they have the cameras coming out on the bottom. But why is it in this movie? <laughs> I get what you're saying, Jacob, that it's an extraneous special effect, but this is a Stark plane. They set up in the very first thing with the film by Peter Parker, hey, Tony Stark's planes don't have pilots, so there's no human beings on this plane, and if you're carrying... All this stuff, you'd want to be as secretive as possible. I went with this is something Tony Stark would put on this plane. It's because this action is so poorly staged. It's just distracting me that there's all these shiny lights going on. I'm, I'm just trying to figure out where are punches being landed here. It's almost Michael Bay Transformers level, This this the way this action is staged. I, it's incomprehensible to me. Again, if you go to Cop Car, there's not a whole lot of great car chases. Like He wasn't an action director. So he's doing what he can do, and they're inserting these giant set pieces because that's what we come to expect. But I, yeah, Coney Island's really disappointing. I'll agree, Jacob. Two watchings, and I'm still not quite sure how Spider-Man got thrown into an engine. I missed that the first time that he was thrown into an engine and webs it up. The third engine explodes. I can't quite tell who's fighting who. I also can't tell what Adrian wants anymore. He has had a very straight through line, but he said, if you don't leave me alone, I'll kill you. He left him under an air conditioner thinking he was dead. And now, okay, he just wants his tech. He just wants to steal the stuff. Spider-Man's stopping him. The plane crashes in Coney Island. I thought I spotted the greatest Easter egg of all time because in the background, there's a big sign that says Thunderbolt. And I'm like, 
They're bringing in the Thunderbolt team. No, it turns out there's really a Coney Island ride yeah. called the Thunderbolt. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're overthinking that. No, yeah. Shocker is a Thunderbolt. I was really thinking. But they crash there, and Peter's deafened. Two movies in two weeks we've covered with deaf moments. I definitely thought about you with your tinnitus. And Vulture's beating him up and holds him up with one wing, and I'm like, he's going to stab him through now. He's going to kill him because he said he would. Then he's like, ooh, shiny objects, drops him and goes to steal a crate that's magically going to explode. Where'd the radiation come from? I don't think it's the crate that explodes. He has that Chitauri tech in his wings, which, yeah, I agree. Where did the radiation come from? Because I thought Tony Stark's, like, chest light-up thing, that wasn't radiation. That was some special, mysterious element that his father helped him discover. But yeah, the Chitauri thing's gonna blow up and supposedly kill Adrian. I think the metaphor being worked here very clumsily is that these are people playing with power they're not quite ready for. And that's supposed to be true of Spider-Man, but of course we want to see him be Spider-Man. We don't want to see a movie of him never putting on the suit and never doing anything cool. And it's also true of this guy who I think they'd be cool if he was just an, uh, an arms dealer, but because it's Chitauri Purple Stones, that makes him too dangerous. And the fact that, I get it, Spider-Man, I don't want him in lethal kill mode. I have a problem when superheroes kill nonchalantly, but I like that, okay, I want to actually save this guy, even though he's a bad guy, because maybe that's my mission, is to try to save people and, and help him reform. But this would have worked better if he saw him as a father figure. The fact that it's just some criminal that tried to kill him, and he's like, well, I'm going to jump into this fire and save you. Yeah, it's a heroic thing, but there's no emotional impact. But the fact that he saves him is a Spider-Man thing to do. And truthfully, I just realized... The Marvel Universe isn't very good about killing off its villain. It killed Ironmonger, and after no, that... No, we gotta have 64 characters in those <laughs> Infinity Wars. You gotta yeah. keep them around. Yeah. yeah, most of the villains do survive in case they want them in another film, or at least have hazy endings like Red Skull, who still could come back someday. So... It didn't seem revolutionary to me that he saved him, but it seemed like the heroic thing to do. Leave him webbed up, and that proves to him, proves to Happy, that this kid is worth something. Because Happy thinks he would have lost his job if the plane was hijacked. That would never happen. I don't think Happy has a job because he's such a great employee. I think he has it because he's such a long-term friend of Tony's. I don't know how he has a job as a driver when Tony has Tesla-level AI that could drive your car for you. That wasn't even Stark AI. That was Audi AI. Didn't you notice? Audi AI engaged? I did know, yeah. So I think that was a product placement, Not even unless Tony Stark sold it to Audi. <laughs> yeah, some cross-pollinization here. And I do like the funny scene where Happy's in the bathroom. That's humor that works for me. And the kid's in the toilet and comes out and washes his hands for the full 15 seconds you're supposed to. It's just that awkward, long humor I enjoyed. You know who I didn't expect to see in this film, or ever again, really? Pepper Potts. <laughs> oh, that's interesting to me. This means something, I bet. They talked about bringing her in with... Civil War, right? Where they just talk about her off screen like they do so many ex-girlfriends like I expect them to do. <laughs> like with Thor's girlfriend, yeah. But what was specifically said by the Russos was 
to get Gwyneth meant renegotiating her contract. Her contract for films were up, and we didn't want to bother renegotiating the contract just to have a scene. Do they need to provide fresh bees for her beauty makeover and steam for her vagina? Is that is that part of the contract? <laughs> I don't know. She looked like she's been on the beach getting a tan in this movie, man. She looked good. She looked really good. She's like, maybe that's why they played down Marissa Tomei's looks. I understand she was very upset that Scarlett Johansson was more attractive than her in Iron Man 2. Maybe they couldn't have anyone more attractive in that contract but if they renegotiated her contract to bring her back for this i bet we're gonna see her in an avengers film coming up pretty soon and i did like this moment you know tony stark he wants to make up with peter and offers um what the iron spider suit i think that's supposed to be if you've read civil war the comic i think the suit he's been wearing this whole time with the ai and the stark tech was really the iron spider suit which is when this looked even more updated though it did it looked metallic but i wish they'd gone the full way i wish it had been orange like the iron spider suit and had the big arms coming out the back that would have been cool but the fact that he has a suit made by tony stark and is apprenticed by Tony Stark. This does feel like the Civil War arc from the comics in that way. Yeah, he's going to have a press conference. I guess he's not going to have to reveal his secret identity. He's just going to put on the suit and be revealed as the newest member of the Avengers. And I I was honed in with Peter there. I'm like, oh, this is just a test to see if he's mature enough. But no, for Tony, there really was a press conference. I thought that was a good joke. No, I could tell the way Downey played it. There were reporters. I didn't think that was a test at all. And when Peter says, this was just a test, right? Downey played it like he was seizing on that. Not only that, but Tony owes this. I mean, this is Tony's growth, such as it is, for this movie is, yeah, you really have been a bad paternal figure. You need to bring him into the fold. You need to give him more personalized training. This was him trying to do that. I'm going to roll you out like a real official Avenger. I'm going to put you in the room next to Vision. We'll make you one of us. And much like Peter, I think the right choice is made about just Stay local. Just give yourself time to be kids. If there's a message to this movie, it is that. I think that's the effective message of Homecoming, is that there's plenty of time to be an adult and deal with all these real-world problems. You're still in high school. Enjoy it while it lasts. I'm glad to see Peter make that decision. There were some lines, you know... Saying that Tony Stark was a father figure isn't subtext. It's text because he's like, I sound like my father, you know, and later he's on that phone and he's like, kids. So it's right there. And that he decides he doesn't need that close guidance. But Tony does give him the suit back. I'm curious if Karen is going to be in the next film. I felt like that was too much Spider-Man tech, too Iron Man-y. Yeah, it was too much. I felt like with the training wheels protocol on, Spider-Man had the exact right level of tech for a Spider-Man movie. I don't know where that's going to go with Avengers Infinity War and beyond. I don't know if Tony's going to be married either, but uh, he's still got the ring. He's had the ring since 2008, which was 12 years ago, because this is 2020, yeah. and he didn't become Iron Man until 2010, so that's when they started dating. Their timeline is so screwed. They need to introduce Kang into this universe so somebody can fix the timeline. <laughs> I think the biggest laugh, though, the film came at the very end, you know, Peter does get his suit, and he thinks May's not there, so he puts it on, and then you see her standing behind there with the, what the, and then the Blitzkrieg bop kicks in. 
That got a big laugh. This movie feels like it has edgy content for a Marvel movie. Not for a teen movie, but the Marvel movie has shied away from the F word so often. It's not Disney. I mean, it is Sony, so I think they could push it a little bit. Yeah, even the Netflix stuff. You can have R-rated violence, but you can't say the F word. Here, Zendaya gives the finger, there's the F Mary kill, and it ends with what the... I don't think she says the word, but you certainly could hear it if you wanted to as Blitzkrieg Bob comes on. I love that shot because they never put Marissa Tomei in focus. She's always standing behind him out of focus when the revelation comes. That's something brand new. And again, something in Ultimate Comics. You have the younger Aunt May who's still vital and who finds out who Spider-Man is. That's something Bendis wrote. Yeah, and I think that'll help her. Marissa Tomei deserves to have more to do in this franchise. The fact that she's going to have to deal with my child is a superhero is somewhere to go for her in the future movies. And will they bring back Vulture? The mid credit sequence seems to tease that he at least is a way of exposing Peter. Who's the one on the outside? Are they teasing Venom? Like, there's someone on the outside waiting to find out who Spider-Man is so he could get the revenge. Listen, the original Sinister Six, you got Vulture with Electro, Craven the Hunter, we've never seen him in a film. But in a musical we have. Fans want him. Mysterio, Sandman, and Dr. Octopus. What about the Swiss Miss? Nobody knows what you're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Is that from the play? I don't know who the Swiss Miss is, except the hot chocolate. Yeah, I think it's both. And Toombs is in jail. Liz and her mother are moving to Oregon. So I guess future movies have to involve either Betty Brant, Zendaya, or maybe Cindy Moon. The Asian student on the academic decathlon is the first movie appearance. Is her name Gwen? No, it is Cindy Moon, who is a spider character known as Silk, who turned out to be bitten by the same spider that bit Peter Parker. Oh, okay. They're really bringing in the whole Spider-Verse. That's the thing. There's a lot of names that I know from the comics. I don't know how much they're going to do with them, but if you're a fan of Spider-Man, you get a lot of lip service here. When Toombs is talking to Scorpion there, I didn't understand. I just didn't get why Toombs didn't give up Peter's identity. I had to go online, read some interviews, and I guess what they're saying is he's just not that bad a guy. He does have gratitude to Peter for saving his life out of that fire when he could have let him die. Yeah, I think you see that. I mean, he's walking the hall to go see his family. And again, I think there is some gratitude there. He's a character defined that I only kill to protect my family. There's some gratitude about the fact that Peter saved his daughter and his daughter loves Peter. So yeah, it's weak. I wish it were more developed. And again, I think that he could be changed. I think something could happen to make him use that information. We'll have to wait and see. And speaking of waiting, we waited through some very long end credits. Michael Giacano doing the score here. It was fine. I didn't love it. Didn't hate it. I was just tapping my foot waiting for the end credit scene. And man, did they punk me. They go full Ferris Bueller here. I mean, I do feel like they showed a clip of Ferris Bueller. They do an homage to it. And I feel like this ending is Ferris telling you, why are you still here? Leave. I feel like John Watts walked out of Deadpool so pissed. They took our <laughs> ending. Spider-Man was supposed to come out and say, go home. The movie's over. Deadpool did it. So they have Chris Evans. He'd been doing... Honestly, these funny tapes, in addition to the gym class one, there was the your body's changing. I know how that feels. I like that one. Yeah. (laughs) So you got detention. The way he sits on that chair backwards with the man spread. (laughs) 
just that choice by Chris Evans. It just makes me laugh. The way he's sitting down to rap with the students. All of these just, it's just like he did in World War II when he was hawking war bonds. And so now there's one about patience being unrewarded. It might be a metaphor for this film. <laughs> I just think that they've locked themselves in a corner and now they're making jokes about their end credit scenes. James Gunn is like, we're going to have five of them. And then this one... And maybe they just don't want to admit that Inhumans is the next one out of the gate. <laughs> that doesn't count. I don't know why we're doing that one. That wig is so bad. <laughs> we'll talk about that. But for now, Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Spider-Man Homecoming? Jacob. Yeah, again, I feel like that Captain America PSA at the end, Patience, does it pay off? Uh, that's really relevant to this film. I'm conflicted here because there's stuff I liked, but there's too much in this film. This should be like a 100-minute film that they push to almost two and a half hours. I want an editor's cut, someone that's a, a very uh, willing editor to cut a lot of film out of this because I think there's a good story here. I'm not opposed to the high school drama John Hughes Spider-Man. I, I think that it would actually be a really cool idea. I like that version of Spider-Man. Again, if you want some high High school drama Spider-Man where it's more about that drama than maybe super heroics. Go read those Spider-Man Loves Mary Jane comics. I think they're pretty good. For this film, again, that's what I gravitate towards. I don't mind that it's a millennial Peter Parker. I, I dig the vibe in this one. When it comes to the action stuff, I don't really like it. I'm going to give it a mild recommend, I guess. I mean, I was entertained enough. I just think there's a lot of problems with it, but they weren't deadly problems that like just made me want to walk out of the film. So mild recommend for Homecoming. Stuart. Yeah, I think it's a successful millennial update of the character in the world. They did a good job building it into the Marvel Universe. I don't think they made a very satisfying movie is the problem. The villain who I like, Michael Keaton, is great, but he doesn't feel well integrated with the story. He doesn't get a good climax. And he's really overshadowed by a lot of snark humor, which, you know, I didn't larb it. I think uh, it's <laughs> it's true to Spider-Man. And if you love the character in the comics, this is the funniest and most joyful but a little of that goes a long way. And as Jacob pointed out, this movie is too long. And so I think it actually, because it has these modest aspirations, would be better on TV, be better as a Netflix show. I just don't see the big event movie in this story. So it was a mild recommend. But I definitely feel like as far as Spider-Man movies go, it's arguably the best. As far as Marvel movies go, it's somewhere in the middle. It's a little better than Iron Man 2. I'd watch Ant-Man before this one again. And just to respond before I get my own recommendation, I think that we've got a couple things going on here. First of all, overall, everybody's tired of the world blowing up every movie. Everybody's tired of the debris floating in the air. I'm tired of two and a half hour action films. Go to 100 minutes. But I think it really hit with Suicide Squad. We're tired of the entire Earth is going to die debris thing. And I think Marvel itself is suffering that. They have Avengers films that are huge. How do you make the middle movies feel important? You make them personal. You make them smaller stories. That can work very well. Another movie that's opening right now is The Big Sick. I really want to see it. I haven't had a chance to yet. That is not world stakes, but movies don't have to be. It's a very personal story. Make me care about the characters. Invest me in whatever's going on in their life. Be it this guy's going to blow up the world or I'm going to flunk my math test. You don't get much smaller than the John Hughes films this was going after. You can still make great films that way. So I don't feel like small stakes is what ruins this movie. I do feel that success is ruining Marvel movies because they consistently put out 
good and great movies to now when I feel like I get a good movie, I feel let down. Oh, the movie was merely good. And that's where I'm at with Spider-Man is I went in hoping for the best Spider-Man film. I got the best Spider-Man. I got half of what I wanted, but I wanted the best Spider-Man movie ever. And I don't think this had anything unique enough about it to really stand out. There wasn't stylish filmmaking. We all wonder how this Watts guy got the job. He did nothing unique with the character. Webb at least tried that first-person stuff. Raimi brought his Raimi cams to the gig. There's nothing that makes this feel different or unique. And I agree, it's probably a middling movie that I'd put around Ant-Man, which is a little bit above Iron Man 2, but still just one of those, it's a solid Marvel movie, but they're consistently solid and my expectations are being raised. This movie is too long. And the worst part is I don't mind long movies. I like getting my money's worth. Not a lot happens. The story is very static. It's not like in the Raimi movie, which is long, Mary Jane and Peter's relationship go through multiple stages of acquaintances to almost dating to not dating. The hero and villain dynamic changes. This movie is so static that when I was watching it from the 60 to 90 minute mark, I felt like everything was in the exact same place it was as soon as the movie started with that two months later. Nothing changed in this movie. It was all the same. And that really was just unfortunate. Yeah, and imagine if they had edited this down to a 60-minute pilot episode, and next week we could get more into these interpersonal dynamics. I Again, I'm not knocking the movie for this. I think it's the best part, but I wouldn't have felt let down if this had been TV show length, because it has TV show aspirations. I, I, again, I don't mind the TV show aspirations on the big screen, because it's going to be Spider-Man. I don't even think the effects were that good in this film. We didn't talk about it, but during that montage at the beginning, I thought Spider-Man moved very much like a PlayStation 4 game. It didn't even look that photo real at times. Like either I stopped noticing or it got better, but at times the graphics weren't big budget movie, at least on the IMAX screen. It looked kind of fakey. I'm giving this, it's a recommend. It's, you know, just right there in the recommend territory. It's not a weak or mild. It's certainly not strong. It's a good movie, but it could have swung so much higher. The problem is they introduce a Spider-Man in Civil War in a great scene. It's a middling movie for me, but that is a great scene. Yeah. And so that set my expectations. It's a better movie than this, though. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. But origins are hard, and even though they try to say this is not an origin... This isn't an origin. <laughs> they said it isn't, but it was about setting the tone for what a solo Spider-Man movie could be. They got a lot more that they can do now, and I think that... I actually do think the potential is high for the next solo Spider-Man movie to be much better. I agree. Part twos are often better than part one. At times, I think I like Spider-Man 2 better than Spider-Man 1 when Raimi did it. An amazing Spider-Man 2 is much better. Yeah, but I'm glad we all like Tom Holland because Marvel is riding high and putting a lot of chips on this very tentative Sony agreement because they're not planning any part fours that they've announced. Contracts are being done. Chris Evans is saying he's probably done. Robert Downey, he's like, well, I'm, I'm not going to keep doing this forever. And Infinity War 3 and 4 is looking like the end for a lot of this Marvel Universe. They're talking about Spider-Man being the one who launches the next phase. And we're going to see Tom Holland every year for a while. Because next year, he's going to be in an Avengers Infinity War. 
The year after that is Avengers 4. That same year of Avengers 4 comes Spider-Man 2, whatever they're going to call it. It's just going to be Spider-Man subtitle, they said, like they're doing with Captain America. Prom. It's junior year. Summer vacation. (laughs) Come on. How more 80s can it get? But that Spider-Man second movie in June of 2019, they said is going to launch the entire tone for phase four of Marvel. And then in 2020 or 2021 comes the third Spider-Man film. So we've got a lot of Tom Holland coming. But after that, Marvel doesn't know. They're like, if Sony wants to continue, but it's looking like Sony doesn't want to continue already. Amy Pascal, as I mentioned, no longer chief at Columbia Pictures. She got removed from that position because of the Sony hack. And not that she was in charge of IT, but the fallout from it yeah she is still a producer on the spider-man films that was a different deal but the new studio heads they're seeing money it feels like we're covering a lot of sony movies lately last week was sony with baby driver this week is sony with spider-man next week is sony with train spotting but they are starting their own spider-verse but because of the contract it can't have spider-man in it so it's going to be Venom. They are making a Venom movie. They've already cast Tom Hardy as Venom. Oh, good. They're talking about this Venom movie with Hardy being a comedy film with Carnage as the bad guy. Oh, so the, he's going to be an anti-hero. They did that in the comics for a while. And then they're doing a movie called Silver and Black. Okay, what's that? Doesn't this excite you? <laughs> it does sound like a prom theme. Silver Sable and Black Cat team up. Okay, now we're getting into those Sinister Six rumors from The Amazing Spider-Man 2. I don't believe it. But here's the thing with all these Spider-Man movies. Tom Holland can't be in any of them. They're making a Spider-Man universe without Spider-Man. So... That could always be renegotiated. Right now, that's where they're at. But, you know, success breeds goodwill. And so, tit for tat, I could see it being worked out. Yeah, it's just apparently the people who replaced Pascal aren't happy this deal was signed the way it was. Yeah, I mean, it could end up being like Daredevil popping up in Elektra, you know? It's like, well, he's kind of here, but not really. Yeah, it's hard to say. Where's my animated Spider-Ham movie? (laughs) That's the team up with Howard the Duck. We are getting an animated Spider-Man movie, too. What? No! In 2018... So next year is a computer animated Spider-Man film being directed by the guy who did Monsters vs. Aliens 2 and Rise of the Guardians. Oh my god, Rise of the Guardians? That's where, like, Santa Claus and all? Yeah, it's all right. Santa Claus and the Tooth Fairy. Oh, okay. Yeah, you would know. You're the dad, so. (laughs) It's basically, yeah, it's the mythology Avengers. Okay, all right. None of it I want to see. But I guess I don't have a choice on that. When you say animated superhero, I never want that. If he's making a see Inhumans, uh, of course we're going to have to see an animated one. I still haven't seen Inhumans. He keeps telling me there's this awful trailer with bad wigs, but I have not seen... They didn't even play it in front of this movie, so... That is a decision you are making because it is out there to ruin your day. That is the next time we're going to the theater to see a Marvel property that it before it get, launches on ABC television, they're putting the pilot out for two weeks in IMAX. And so, yeah, I guess Labor Day, always a bad time for movies. We will be covering that. And then, of course, Thor a few months later. Yeah, Thor's the real movie, but Inhumans is in this Marvel cinematic universe. And so we'll be covering that. No, it's not. <laughs> 
They would never let a wig that bad in it. I'm sorry. <laughs> I can't get over the wig. I, you know, I can't, I'm now looking forward to it. Like, not, I don't want to see anything but the wig. I mean, there are still photos. You just Google it, Stuart. You are. <laughs> I don't want to see it. I don't want to Google it. I don't want to spend my free time on it. I don't want to spend the IMAX ticket money on it when it'll be on <laughs> ABC two weeks later. <laughs> and then we got. Black Panther in February. I keep forgetting that one's pre-Avengers 3 in. But in February, we're going to get that. We did see that trailer before this. It looks really interesting. I think it looked awesome. But other than the flip, the the special effect wasn't quite right. (laughs) I Yeah, I haven't been this excited since Doctor Strange. I hope they don't Uh disappoint me. I really wanted Doctor Strange to be crazy and good. And it ended up being rather mediocre. In fact, painfully mediocre. But yes, if trailers are an indication of quality this looks like a really good chapter of the marvel universe but for us for the next two weeks we're going to a different kind of youth film about a bunch of youths on heroin train spotting <laughs> well they're not always youth in the second movie they get a little bit older but yeah we're going to do a little bit different because we can't see dunkirk when it actually comes out i figured what's something anglophile that we could cover in between they made a sequel to train spotting that we wanted to cover back in the spring couldn't fit into our calendar but now that it has come out in home viewing formats this is the opportunity and so yeah we're taking the time to cover it both as movies and over at books and nachos I'll be covering all three books. So next week is Train Spotting. Week after that, Train Spotting 2. And then one week after we would normally do it, on August 1st is our review of Christopher Nolan's new film, Dunkirk. But that doesn't mean we're not going to theaters because next week we have three podcasts coming out. We have Train Spotting. We have War for the Planet of the Apes. It's going to be coming out probably around the time of train spotting that opens this Wednesday in theaters tomorrow. Stuart and I both have tickets to the movie Marathon for Planet of the Apes. All 12 films? Mm. Or is it just the new ones? The re- yeah, the, the new universe. Yeah, just three films. No Tim Burton. Yeah, a mere seven hours as opposed to, yeah. How, yeah, and definitely no Tim Burton. <laughs> but you can marathon our Planet of the Apes reviews. We did do that back in 2014 when the second new Planet of the Apes films came out, and we are continuing that as part of our spring donation drive. And I'm going to be perfectly honest, our donations have dried up. We're hoping people want to hear these Planet of the Apes reviews because it's been a while since we did Alien Covenant and a while since we did Pirates of the Caribbean, but that is our drive. Silver is Pirates of the Caribbean, gold is Pirates with the Alien films, and platinum is the Planet of the Apes series. If you already have Alien or don't want to hear some of those, you can also get all of our Planet of the Apes reviews individually on our Podbean page and listen to them. And when the new show comes out, it will be there as well. You know, Stuart wanted Spider-Man as a TV show. We do have TV reviews, too. There's a peaking level. That is true. The peaking level for Twin Peaks reviews just two days ago. Twin Peaks came back after a much-talked-about eighth episode. We'll be talking about that ninth episode this Friday. That is available, again, for a peaking level donation or through Podbean at nowpeakingpodcast.com. And speaking of Podbean, also next week, Stuart, Brock, and I never give up, never surrender when we review Galaxy Quest just for our Podbean patrons. If you sign up for $10 or more, you get all of our patron-exclusive reviews. And this year alone, we've done Warriors... Coherence, Galaxy Quest, Hook, 
and monster trucks. You can find all the details at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. So a lot of content from us coming out this week. We hope you enjoy it all. We hope you've enjoyed this review. Come to the forums. Tell us what you thought of Homecoming or let us know on Facebook and Twitter. So Stuart, Jacob, thank you for joining me. We'll be back next week with Train Spotting, And in September, when the Inhumans assemble... I was just trying to be like you. I want you to be better. I'm gonna need the suit back. But I'm nothing without this suit. If you're nothing without this suit, then you shouldn't have it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Now Playing Avengers Retrospective Series. We're adjourned. We're adjourned for the day. Okay. You've been a delight. Part of our Marvel Comics Movie Retrospective Series. This is a whole new level of weird. I don't feel inclined to step away from it. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week. Your work has impressed a lot of people who are much smarter than I am. While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, go to our archives, where you can find reviews of other Marvel Comics movie series, such as X-Men, The Fantastic Four, Blade, and Punisher, plus DC Comics reviews of Green Lantern, Batman, and Superman. Good luck keeping up. We also have non-comic-based movie reviews such as Star Trek, Terminator, Halloween, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Tron, and many more. I'm bringing the party to you. You will also find individual movie reviews such as Cowboys and Aliens, Avatar, and Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. Would you like to hear what they're saying? I can hear what they're saying. While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this show with other listeners. Here we remain as a beacon of hope. Shining out across the stars. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. It's strange. Maybe. Who am I to judge? The links to our social media pages can be found at NowPlayingPodcast.com. Therefore, what I'm saying, if I'm saying anything, is welcome back. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. You have to explain that statement, sir. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Is it too much for a problem to ask? Because I'm, I'm... Okay, okay. I really need your help here. You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy t-shirts, totes, boxers, coffee mugs, teddy bears, and much more. Get yourself something nice for me. I already did. And? Oh, it's very nice. Yeah. Very tasteful. Now Playing's Avengers Retrospective Series is edited by Arnie. All right, let's start over. You can edit it. Three, two, one. Now Playing Credit Narration by Brock. Wow. You spoke to me with what you did, and I know that you knew that I'd be listening. Now Playing is not affiliated with Marvel Enterprises or Marvel Studios, Paramount Pictures, Universal Pictures, or the Disney Company. The Avengers, Captain America, Iron Man, Thor, The Incredible Hulk, and all that the Marvel Universe contains are the property and trademark of the Disney Company, and no infringement is intended. You really think that just because you have an idea, it belongs to you? 
The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Inganza Media Incorporated. Just stick to the official statement and soon this will all be behind you. Now Playing is a Inganza Media production, copyright 2017. All rights reserved. Any last words? Hulk! Smash! This gotta keep it a secret. I'll level with you. I don't think I can keep this a secret. This is the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. I can't believe this is happening right now. Look, she did a remake of Scott Bayo Zapped. <laughs> Again, a Disney version. I, I'm guessing there's no locker room scene with the girls' clothes flying off. If she makes a sequel, I think that's a retrospective in waiting. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Actually, there are two Zapped. There was Zapped, Zapped Again, oh. which was a direct-to-video <laughs> sequel, and then now this Zapped. Yeah, I looked that up thinking, retrospective? No, it's a Disney movie where she can control boys with her cell phone, and I doubt if there's any <laughs> boobies in that one. I'm sure it's better than Scott Bayo, though. I don't know. A lot of boobies in that one. It was Carrie with nudity. I remember <laughs> loving it. That's all I can say. Yeah, well. <laughs> yes, young age nudity. Yeah, you get that it. may be. <laughs> it made me like it enough to see Zapped again. <laughs> I actually saw a number of movies in 1987 because I was living in Florida and our air conditioner was broken. And my mom's like, we're going to see a movie every day. <laughs> Thank you, Revenge of the Nerds 2. It was at least cool in that theater. But I did scare my 10-year-old who, for some reason, saw Birdman and like, hey, that, that is the worst film, according to her. I'm like, well, you know, you got Birdman playing a Birdman in this film. She's like, I don't know if I want to see it. But Zendaya, okay, that changed her mind. <laughs> it's been... Damn it. Shit, is it really? It's been 30 years since I started high school. I was going to wonder, there's, you know, there's a Dobega across... A do, bodega, bodega. Not Dobega. Dagobah. There's a bodega. <laughs> Sinister Six. I'm shocked they are setting up the Sinister Six in this. Nice oh. pun. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Yeah, it was funny when I was asking the girls about that they re recommended. Kira's like, I give it three out of five stars, but then they had the cat and they saved the cat, so I gave it an extra star for yeah, that. Yeah, you never kill them. <laughs> I'm like... Yeah, that's why they even had the cat in the deli, because who wants, who wants cat fur when you're dealing with yeah. lunch and yeah, meat? I was thinking that same thing. I'm like, that's very hygienic. Would not get an A in the window for that. No. I don't know if they do that in New York, but yeah. I don't, yeah, I'm not sure... <laughs> And people know life is not a Venom prequel. I don't know where that rumor started. I saw that movie. That movie's crap. That movie is terrible. It's nothing like Venom. Oh, my God. I had that movie sitting waiting for me. Oh, it's so, <laughs> I was going it's to watch so it after this podcast. Thanks, guys. Oh, it's, it's not even a good alien ripoff, which it really wants to be. Oh, it, is, it does want to be so bad. And it was so bad. <laughs>